The following is a conversation with Liv Bury, formerly one of the best poker players in the world, trained as an astrophysicist and is now a philanthropist and an educator on topics of game theory, physics, complexity, and life. And now onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make this interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out our sponsors. I enjoy this stuff. Maybe you will too. First, we've got Audible. It's an audiobook service that gives me thousands of hours. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that, of educational material. I've been running every single day, almost with no exception, at least eight miles. That's often anywhere from one to two and a half hours, depending on the distance I'm doing. And my trusted companion through that is either Brown Noise, which I just listened to uh, YouTube videos of Brown Noise, if I'm not listening to brown noise when I'm running and focusing on my thoughts, I am listening to audiobooks. And that's usually the source of fun, the source of intense thinking for me, exploration. It's a, it's a journey into another world, into another time. And an audio book reading of a book can really take you to that place. It can really transport you there. New members can try the thing free for 30 days at audible.com slash lex or text lex to 500, 500. This show is brought to you by GiveWell. They research charitable organizations and only recommend the highest impact evidence-backed charities. It may be counterintuitive, but uh, giving money or helping others is actually a really difficult process. It's not as simple as throwing cash up in the air and hoping the wind catches it and redistributes it somehow optimally to the people who need it most. It really is a complicated process. Obviously, you have to avoid corruption, you have to avoid bureaucracy, all the overhead that has to do with the giving process. You know, if you build too big of an organization, you're gonna spend more money on running the organization than you are in actually uh, giving money directly to people or helping people directly in some way. And that's what uh, GiveWell optimizes and really understands and helps you figure out which are the good charities to give money to. Donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $750 million. Go to givewell.org, pick podcast, and select Lex Friedman Podcast at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by Linode, Linux Virtual Machines. I literally smile every time I say Linux. It's, it must be genetic. I think the first time I interacted with the Linux terminal, it could have been a Unix terminal, maybe a sun. So basically a command line where you could do, have access to bash and Perl. Anyway, all of that was in Linux and it opened up to me the world of power at the fingertips of a programmer. I mean, Linux really makes that clear to you much, much, much more than uh, does Windows. Anyway, I'm a huge fan of uh, computer infrastructures like Linode, my favorite one, that makes all that power available to you in the cloud has a million things you could do. Small projects, huge systems, all of it. I use Linode uh, for all kinds of stuff and it, it really, really, really is a great computer infrastructure and made super simple and easy to access and monitor and all that kind of stuff. Visit linode.com slash lex for free credit. This show is also brought to you by Indeed, a hiring website. I've used them for many hiring efforts I've done for the teams I've led in the past it really is the most important thing you could do in your life, which is optimize the inner circle, the folks you surround yourself with. 
Of course, you could do that with family, you could do that with friends, but because a lot of us spend such a large percentage of our time at work, we should also do that with the people we work with. And if you're in the position of a, like a manager or like a hiring manager, and you get to optimize the inner circle, this isn't just about productivity. It's not just about kind of filling a gap in the team. It's about bringing meaning and happiness to everybody involved. Companies come and go but uh, a deep, meaningful life journey is something bigger than all of that. So yeah, use the best tools for the job. I, I like Indeed, uh, they do a really great job. They have a special offer only available for a limited time. So go check it out at indeed.com slash Lex. This show is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. I use them to protect my privacy on the interwebs. It protects you a bit more from ISPs, internet service providers, from being able to collect your data, even when you navigate to shady websites, which I know you do in incognito mode in Chrome. You can watch shows that are geographically restricted. ExpressVPN is a VPN, so it should do the VPN thing well. It uh, should be fast, it should work anywhere, like on any device, again, anywhere, everywhere at least anywhere I can think of, it works. It works fast, it's very intuitive, it's very simple, it does the thing it's supposed to do and does it well. In terms of execution, I mean, there's very few things I admire than systems, software systems that do the job they're supposed to do and do it well. And all the improvements, all the version updates that they do, just push further the ability to do the thing well. They don't shove all the kind of weird features into it. It just does the thing it's supposed to do and does it well. Go to expressvpn.com slash LexPod for an extra three months free. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast. To support it, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, dear friends, here's Liv Bury. What role do you think luck plays in poker and in life? You can pick whichever one you want, poker or life and or life. The longer you play, the less influence luck has. You know, like with all things, the bigger your sample size, um, the more the quality of your decisions or your strategies matter. Um, so to answer that question, yeah, in poker, it really depends. If you and I sat and played 10 hands right now, I might only win 52% of the time, 53% maybe. Um, but if we played 10,000 hands, then I'll probably win like over 98, 99% of the time. So it's a question of sample sizes. And what are you figuring out over time? The betting strategy that this individual does or literally it doesn't matter against any individual over time? Against any individual over time, the better player because they're making better decisions. So what does that mean to make a better decision? Well, uh, to get into the real nitty-gritty already. Um, basically, poker is a game of math. Um, there are these strategies, familiar with like Nash Equilibria, that yes. term, right? So there are these game theory optimal strategies that, that you can adopt. Um, and the closer you play to them, the less exploitable you are. So because I've studied the game a bunch, um, although admittedly not for a few years, but back in, you know, when I was playing all the time, um, I would study these game theory optimal solutions and try and then adopt those strategies when I go and play. So I'd play against you and I would do that. And because 
the objective when you're playing game theory optimal, it's actually it's a loss minimization thing that you're trying to do. Um, your best bet is to try and play uh, the sim- a sort of similar style. You also need to try and adopt this loss minimization. Um, but because I've been playing much longer than you, I'll be better at that. So first of all, you're not taking advantage of my mistakes. But then on top of that, I'll be better at recognizing when you are playing suboptimally and then deviating from this game theory optimal strategy to exploit your bad plays. Can you define game theory and Nash equilibria? Can we try to sneak up to it in a bunch of ways? Like, uh, what's the game theory framework of analyzing poker, analyzing any kind of situation? So game theory is just basically the study of decisions within uh, a competitive situation. Um, I mean, it's technically a branch of economics, um, but it also applies to like, deci- like wider decision theory. Um, and... You know, usually when you see it, it's these like little payoff matrices and so on. That's how it's depicted. But it's essentially just like study of strategies under different competitive situations. Um, and as it happens, certain games, in fact, many, many games, um, have these things called Nash equilibria. And what that means is when you're in a Nash equilibrium, basically, uh, it is not, there is no strategy that you can take that would be more beneficial than the one you're currently taking, assuming your opponent is also doing the same thing. Um, so it would be a bad idea, you know, if we're both playing a, 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 in, you know, a game theory optimal strategy, if either of us deviate from that, now the other, you know, the we're, we're putting ourselves at a disadvantage. Um, rock, paper, scissors is actually a really great example of this. Like if we to, were to start playing rock, paper, you know, you know nothing about me and we're going to play for all our money, let's play 10 rounds of it. What would your sort of optimal strategy be, do you think? What would you do? Uh, let's see. I would probably try to be as random as possible. Exactly. You want to, because you don't know anything about me, you don't want to give anything about away about yourself. So ideally you'd have like a little dice or somewhat, you know, perfect randomizer mm-hmm. that makes you randomize 33% of the time each of the three different things. And in response to that, um, well, actually, I can kind of do anything, but I would probably just randomize back too. But actually, it wouldn't matter because you're—I know that you're playing randomly. Um, so that would be us in a Nash equilibrium um, where we're both playing this like unexploitable strategy. However, if after a while you then notice that I'm playing rock a little bit more often than I should, yeah, you're the kind of person that would do that, wouldn't you? Sure. Yes. 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 I'm, no, I'm more of a scissors girl, but anyway, you are. Uh, no, I'm a as I said, randomizer. Uh, so you notice I'm throwing rock too much or something like that. Right. Now you'd be making a mistake by continuing playing this game theory optimal strategy because, well, the previous one, because you are now, uh, there's an, there, I'm making a mistake and you're not deviating and exploiting my mistake. Um, so you'd want to start throwing paper a bit more often um, in whatever you figure is the right sort of percentage of the time that I'm throwing rock too often. So that's basically an example of where you know, what, what game theory optimal strategy is in terms of loss minimization, but it's not always uh, the maximally profitable thing if your opponent is doing stupid, stupid stuff, which, you know, in that example. So that's kind of then how it works in poker, but it's a lot more complex. Right. Um, and the way poker players typically, you know, nowadays they study, the game's changed so much, and I think we should talk about how it's sort of evolved. Um, but nowadays, like the, the top pros basically spend all their time in between sessions running these simulators uh, using like software where they do basically Monte Carlo simulations, sort of doing billions of fictitious self-play hands 
you input a fictitious hand scenario like, oh, I, what do I do with Jack Nine suited on a King Ten Four Two Two Spade board, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and you know against this bet size. So you'd input that, press play, it'll run its its uh, you know its billions of fake hands, and then it'll converge upon what the game theory optimal strategies are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you want to try and memorize what these are. Basically, they're like ratios of how often, you you know, what types of hands uh, you want to bluff and what percentage of the time. So then there's this additional layer of inbuilt randomization built in. Yeah, those those kind of simulations incorporate all the betting strategies and everything else like that. So yes. they, So as opposed to some kind of very crude mathematical model of what's the probability you win just based on the quality of the card, uh, it's including everything else too, the, the game theory of it. Yes. Yeah, essentially. And what's interesting is that nowadays, if you want to be a top pro and you go and play in these really like the super high stakes tournaments or tough cash games, if you don't know this stuff, you're going to get eaten alive in the long run. Yeah. But of course, you could get lucky over the short run. And that's where this like luck factor comes in, because luck is both a blessing and a curse. If luck didn't, you know, if there wasn't this random element and there wasn't the ability for worse players to win sometimes, then poker would fall apart. You know, the same reason people don't play chess uh, professionally for money against you know, you don't see people going and hustling uh chess like not knowing uh, trying trying to make a living from it because you know there's very little luck in chess but there's quite a lot of luck in poker have you seen uh, uh, beautiful mind that movie years ago well what do you think about the game theoretic formulation of uh what is it the hot blonde at the bar do you remember like oh yeah the way they illustrated it is they're trying to pick up a girl at a bar and there's multiple girls they're like friend it's like a friend group and you're trying to approach i don't remember the details but i remember don't you like then speak to her friends yeah first or something yeah like that yeah. feign disinterest i mean it's classic pickup artist stuff yeah. right you you want to and they were trying to uh correlate that somehow that being an optimal strategy uh game theoretically why what what like i don't think i remember i can't imagine that there. i mean there's probably an optimal strategy is it does that mean that there's an actual Nash equilibrium of like picking up girls? Do you know the uh, the the marriage problem? It's uh, optimal stopping. Yes. So where it's an optimal dating strategy where you uh, do you, do you remember? What yeah, it is? I think it's like something like you 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 know you've got like a set of a hundred people you're going to look through, yeah. and after how many do you now after that after going on this many dates out of a hundred? At what point do you then go, okay, the next best person I see, is that the right one? And I think it's like something like 37%. Uh, it it's one over E, whatever that is. Right, which I think is 37%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're going to fact check that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, but it's funny, under those strict constraints, then yes, after that many people, as long as you have a fixed size pool, then you just pick the the per- the next person that is better than anyone you've anyone seen before. You've seen, yeah. Uh, have you have you tried this? Have I'm, you incorporated I'm it? I'm not one of those people. I'm a, uh, we're, and we're going to discuss this. I <laughs> and <laughs> what do you mean those people? Uh, I try not to uh, optimize stuff. Um, I try to uh, listen to the heart. I don't think I'm. Uh, I like my mind immediately is attracted to optimizing everything. And I think that if if you really give in to that kind of addiction, that you lose the the joy of the small things, the minutia of life. I yes. think I don't know. So I'm I'm concerned about the addictive nature of my personality in that regard. Mm-hmm. In some ways, while I think the on average people 
under try and quantify things or try under optimize. Um, there are some people who, you know, it's like with all these things, it's a, you know, it's a balancing act. I've been on dating apps, but I've never used them. I, I'm sure they have the data on this because they probably have the optimal stopping control problem. Because there aren't a lot of people that use social, like dating apps are on there for a long time. So the 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 interesting the interesting aspect is like, all right, how long before you stop looking before it actually starts affecting your mind negatively such that you see dating as a kind of um a game. A, a kind of game versus an actual uh process of finding somebody that's gonna make you happy for the rest of your life. Mm. That's really interesting. Uh, they have the data. I wish they would be able to release that data. Uh, and I do wonder how It's okay, Cupid, right? I think they ran a huge, huge study on all of their... Yeah, they're more data-driven, I think, yes. Cupid folks are. Yeah. I think there's a lot of opportunity for dating apps, in you know, even bigger than dating apps, people connecting on the internet. I just hope they're more data-driven. And it doesn't seem that way. I, I think, like, um, I've always, wa I've always thought that um, Goodreads, should be a dating app. Like the, the <laughs> I've never used it. Uh, the Goodreads is uh, Goodreads is just list uh, like books that you've read. Okay. And it allows you to comment on the books you read and what the books you're currently reading. But it's a giant social network of people reading books. And that seems to be a much better database of like interests. Of right. course it constrain you to the books you're reading, but like that really reveals so much more about the person. Allows you to discover shared interests because books are kind of window into the way you see the world. Also, like the kind of places, people you're curious about, the kind of ideas you're curious about. Are you a romantic? Mm -hmm. or are you cold calculating rationalist? Are you uh, are you into Ayn Rand or are you into Bernie Sanders? Are you into whatever? Right. This, and I feel like that reveals so much more than like a a person trying to look uh, hot from a certain angle in a Tinder profile. Well, side. and it would also be a really great filter in the first place for people, it selects for people who read books and are willing to go and rate them and give feedback on them and so on. So that's already a really strong filter or of probably the type of people you'd be looking for. Well, at least be able to fake reading books. I mean, the thing about books, you don't really need to read it. You can just look game, at the Yeah, game the dating app by feigning intellectualism. Yeah. Can I admit something very horrible about myself? Go on. The things that, you know, I don't have many things in my closet, but this is one of them. I've never actually read Shakespeare. I've only read Cliff Notes. And I got a five in the AP English uh, exam. Wow. And I, which I, book? Uh, the, the, which books have I read? Well, not? yeah, which was the, the exam on which book? Oh, no, they, they include a lot of them. Oh, okay. uh, but Hamlet, uh, I don't even know if you read Romeo and Juliet, uh, Macbeth. I don't, I don't remember, but I don't understand it. It's like really cryptic. It's hard. It's yeah. really, I don't, and it's not that pleasant to read. It's like ancient speak. I don't understand it. Anyway, maybe I was too dumb. I'm still too dumb, but uh, I but did. You got a five, which is. Yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. how the U.S. grading system. Oh, no. So AP English is a, there's kind of this advanced versions of courses in high school. And you take a test that is like a broad test for that subject and includes a lot. It wasn't obviously just Shakespeare. I think a lot of it was also writing, uh, written. You have like AP physics, AP computer science, AP biology, AP chemistry, and then AP English or AP literature. I forget what it was. But I, I think Shakespeare was a part of that. But I, I and you and you game the point is you gamified it. Gamified. Well, entirety. I, mean, I was into getting A's. I saw it as a game. I don't think any 
I don't think all the learning I've done has been outside of the outside of school. The deepest learning I've done has been outside of school, with a few exceptions, especially in grad school, like deep computer science courses. But that was still outside of school because it was outside of getting sorry, it was outside of getting the A for the course. The best stuff I've ever done is when you read the chapter and you do many of the problems at the end of the chapter, mm. which is usually not what's required for the course, like the hardest stuff. In, in fact, textbooks are freaking incredible. If you go back now and you look at like biology textbook or, or any of the computer science textbooks on algorithms and data structures, those things are incredible. Yeah. They, they have the best summary of a subject, plus they have practice problems of increasing difficulty that allows you to truly master the basic, like the fundamental ideas behind that. That was, I, I got through my entire physics degree with one textbook that was just this really comprehensive one that they told us at the beginning of the first year, buy this, but you're gonna have to buy 15 other books for all your supplementary courses. and. I, I was like, every time I would just check to see whether this book covered it, and it did. And I think I only bought like two or three extra, and thank God, because they're so super expensive textbooks. It's a whole racket they've got going on. Um, yeah, they are. They they could just, you get the right one. It's just like a manual for, but what's interesting though, is this is the tyranny of, of having exams and yeah. metrics. It's the tyranny of exams and metrics, yes. I loved them because I loved, I'm, I'm very competitive and I liked yes. I liked finding ways to gamify things and then like sort of dust off my shoulders afterwards when I get, get a good grade or be annoyed at myself when I didn't. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right in that the actual, you know, how much of that physics knowledge I've retained. Like I've, I, I learned how to cram and study and please an examiner. But did that give me the deep lasting knowledge that I needed. I mean, yes, yes and no. Um, but really, like nothing makes you learn a, a topic better than when you actually then have to teach it yourself. Um, you know, like I'm trying to wrap my teeth around this like game theory Moloch stuff right now. And there's no exam at the end of it uh, that I can gamify. There's no way to gamify and sort of like shortcut my way through it. I have to understand it so deeply from like deep foundational levels to then build upon it and then try and explain it to other people. And like, you know, you're about to go and do some lectures, right? You, you, you can't, you can't sort of just like, you probably presumably can't rely on the knowledge that you got through when you were studying for an exam yeah. to reteach that. Yeah. And especially high level lectures, especially the kind of stuff you do on YouTube, you're not just regurgitating material. You have to think through what is the core idea here. And um, when you do the lectures live, especially, you have to, there's no uh, second takes. Yeah. Uh, that is a luxury you get if you're recording a video for YouTube or something like that. But um, it definitely is a luxury you shouldn't lean on. I've gotten to interact with a few YouTubers that lean on that too much. And you realize, oh, you're you've gamified this system because you're not really thinking deeply about stuff. You're through the edit, both written and uh, spoken. You're crafting an amazing video, but you yourself as a human being have not really deeply understood it. So live teaching, or at least recording video with very few takes, is is a uh, is a different beast. And I think it's it's the most honest way of doing it. Like as few takes as possible. That's why I'm nervous about this. <laughs> don't <laughs> go back don't, and be like, ah, let's do that. Don't fuck <laughs> this up, Liv. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> the tyranny of exams. I do think, you know, people talk about, you know, high school and college 
as a time to do drugs and drink and have fun and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, looking back, of course, I did a lot of those things. No, uh, yes. yes. But the, <laughs> it's also a time when you get to like read textbooks or read books or learn with all the time in the world. Like you don't have these responsibilities of like, uh, you know, laundry and um, uh, having to s sort of uh, pay for mortgage or all that taxes. kind of stuff, pay taxes, all this kind of stuff. Uh, in most cases, there's just m so much time in the day for learning. And you don't realize it at the, th at the time because at the time it seems like a chore. Like why the hell does there's so much homework? But you never get a chance to do this kind of learning, this kind of homework ever again in life, unless later in life you really make a big effort out of it. You get like you basically your knowledge gets solidified. You don't get you don't get to have fun and learn. Learning is really is really fulfilling and really fun if you're that kind of person. Like some people like to you know like knowledge is not something that uh, they think is fun. But if if that's a kind of thing that you think is fun. That's the time to have fun and do the drugs and drink and all that kind of stuff. But the learning, just going back to those textbooks, the hours spent with the textbooks is uh, is really, really rewarding. Do people even use textbooks anymore? Yeah. Do you think? Because <laughs> It's these days with their well, TikTok just, and their... Well, well, not even that, but just like so much information, really high quality information, you know, is now in digital format online. Um, yeah, but they're not, they are using that, but, you know, College is still very, there's a curriculum. I mean, so much of school is about rigorous study of a subject and still on YouTube, that's not there. Right. YouTube has, um, uh, Grant Sanderson talks about this. He's uh, this math Three educator. blue, one brown. Yeah, three blue, one brown. He says like, I'm not a math teacher. I, I just take really cool concepts and I inspire people. But if you wanna really learn calculus, if you wanna really learn linear algebra, you, you, should, you should do the textbook, you should do that, you know. And there's still the uh, the textbook industrial complex that <laughs> that like charges like $200 for textbook and somehow, I don't know, it's, it's ridiculous. There's, there's <laughs> well, they're like, oh, but sorry, new edition, edition 14.6. Sorry, you, you can't use 14.5 anymore. It's like, what's different? We've got one paragraph different. So we, we mentioned offline Daniel Negrano. Um, I'm going to get a chance to talk to him uh, on this podcast. And he's somebody that I, I, was, I found fascinating in terms of the way he thinks about poker, verbalizes the way he thinks about poker, the way he plays poker. So... And he's still pretty damn good. He's been good for a long time. So you mentioned that people are running these kinds of simulations and the, the game of poker has changed. Do you think he's adapting in this way? Do you, like the top pros, are, do they have to adopt this way? Or is there is there still like over the years, you, you basically develop this gut feeling about, like you, you get to be like good the way like Alpha Zero is good. You look at, the board and s somehow from the fog comes out the right answer. Like this is likely what they have. This is likely the best way to move. And you don't really, you can't really put a finger on exactly why, uh, but it just comes from your gut feeling or no. Yes and no. So gut feelings are definitely very important. Um, you know, that we've got our two more, you can distill it down to two modes of decision-making, right? You've got your sort of logical, linear voice in your head, 
system two, as it's often called, and your system one, your 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 gut, your gut intuition. Um, and historically in poker, the very best players were playing almost entirely by their gut. Um, you know, often they would do some kind of inspired play and you'd ask them why they do it and they wouldn't really be able to explain it. Um, and that's not so much because their process was unintelligible, but it was more just because no one under, no one had the language with which to describe what optimal strategies were because no one really understood how poker worked. This was before, you know, we had analysis software. You know, no one was writing, you know, if I guess some people would write down their hands in a little notebook, but there was no way to assimilate all this data and, and analyze it. But then, you know, with when computers became cheaper and software started emerging and then obviously online poker where it would like automatically save your hand histories. Um, now all of a sudden you kind of had this, this body of data that you could run analysis on. And so that's when people started to see, you know, these mathematical solutions. And, um, and so what that meant is the, the role of intuition essentially became smaller. Um, and it, it it went more into as it, as we talked before about you know this game theory optimal style, but as also as I said, like game theory optimal is about um, loss minimization and being unexploitable. But if you're playing against people who aren't, because no person, no human being can play perfectly game theory optimal in poker. Not even the best AIs. They're still like they're you know they're ninety nine point nine nine percent of the way there or whatever. But it's it's kind of like the speed of light. You can't reach it perfectly. So there, there's still a role for intuition. Yes. So. When yeah, when you're playing this unexploitable style, but when your opponents start doing uh, something you know suboptimal that you want to exploit, well now that's where not only your like logical brain will need to be thinking, well okay, I know I have this, my I'm in the sort of top end of my range here with this with this hand, uh, so that means I need to be calling X percent of the time, um, and I put them on this range, etc. Uh, but then sometimes you'll have this gut feeling that will tell you. You know, ah, you know what? This time, I know, I know mathematically, I'm meant to call now. You know, I've got, I'm in the sort of top end of my range, and um, these, this is the odds I'm getting. So the math says I should call, but there's something in your gut saying they've got it this time. They've got it. Like, uh, they're, they're beating you. Maybe your hand is worse. Um, so then the, the the real art. This is where the the last remaining art in poker, the the fuzziness, uh, is like: Do you listen to your gut? How do you quantify the strength of it, or can you even quantify the strength of it? Um, and I think that's what Daniel has. I mean, I I can't speak for how much he's studying with 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 the simulators and that kind of thing. I think he has. Like yeah. he must be to to still be keeping up. Um, but he has an incredible intuition for just, he's seen so many hands of poker in the flesh. He's seen so many people, the way they behave when the chips are, you know, when the money's on the line and you've got him staring you down in the eye, you know, he's intimidating. Mm -hmm. He's got this like kind of X factor vibe that he, you know, gives out. And he talks a lot, which is an interactive element, which is he's getting stuff from other people. Yes. Yeah. And just like the subtlety. So he's like, He's probing constantly. Yeah, he's probing and he's getting this extra layer of information yeah. that others can't. Now, that said, though, he's good online as well. You know, I don't know how, again, would he be beating the top cash game players online? Probably not. No. Um, but when he's in in person and he's got that additional layer of information, he, he can not only extract it, but he knows what to do with it um, still so well. Uh, there's one player who I would say is the exception to all of this. Um, and he's one of my favorite people to talk about in terms of, 
I think he might have cracked the simulation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Phil Helmuth. Mm -hmm. uh, he... <laughs> In more ways than one, he's uh, cracked the simulation, I think. Yeah, he... <laughs> Somehow to this day is still, and I love you, Phil. Don't I'm not in any way knocking you. Um, he's still winning so much at the World Series of Poker, specifically. Um, he's now won 16 bracelets. The next nearest person I think has won 10. Um, and he is consistently year in, year out, going deep or winning these huge field tournaments, you know, with like 2,000 people, um, which statistically he should not be doing. And yeah. and yet you watch some of the plays he makes and they make no sense. Like mathematically, they are so far from game theory optimal. Yeah. And the thing is, if you went and stuck him in one of these high, like high stakes cash games with a bunch of like GTO people, he's going to get ripped apart. But there's something that he has that when he's in the halls of the World Series of Poker specifically, um, amongst sort of amateurish players, he gets them to do crazy shit. Like yeah. that. And, and, but my little pet theory is that also... He just the card. He, he's he's like a wizard, and he gets the cards to do what he needs them to, <laughs> um, because he he just expects to win, and he expects to receive you know to get flopper set with a, a frequency far beyond what this you know the, the 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 real percentages are. And I don't even know if he knows what the real percentages I, are. He doesn't need to I because think, he gets that. I think he has found the chico because when I've seen him play, he seems to be like annoyed that the long shot thing didn't happen. Yes. <laughs> He's like annoyed and, and it's almost like everybody else is stupid because he was obviously going to win with this. Meant to win if that silly thing hadn't happened. And it's like, you don't understand, the silly thing happens 99% of the time. And yeah. it's 1%, not the other way around. But genuinely, for his lived experience, at the World's, only at the World Series of Poker, it yeah. is like that. <laughs> so I don't blame him for feeling that way. Yeah. Um, but he does. He has this, he has this X factor and... P the, the poker community has tried for years to rip him down saying like, you know, he doesn't, he's no good, but he's clearly good because he's still winning or there's something going on, whether that's, he's figured out how to mess with the fabric of reality and how cards are, you know, a randomly shuffled deck of cards come out. I don't know what it is, but he's doing, doing it right still. Who, who do you think is the greatest of all time? Would you put Helmuth? Not, not he's definitely he seems like the kind of person when mentioned he would actually watch this so you might want to be careful no. I, as i said i love phil yes. and i and i i'm i have i would say this to his face i'm not yeah. saying anything i don't he's got he truly i mean he is one of the greatest yeah i don't know if he's the greatest he's certainly the greatest at the world series of poker and he is the greatest at despite the game switching into a pure game of almost an entire game of math he has managed to keep the magic alive and this like the, just through sheer force of will making the game work for him and that is incredible and i think it's something that should be studied because it's an example yeah there might be some actual game theoretic wisdom there there might be something to be said about optimality from studying him right what do you mean, from, do you mean by optimality meaning uh or rather game design perhaps meaning if what he's doing is working maybe poker is more complicated than we're currently modeling it as. So like- his, Or yeah. there's an extra layer, and I don't mean to get too yes. weird and wooey, but, or there's an extra layer of ability to manipulate the things the way you want them to go yeah. that we don't understand yet.
do you think Phil Hellmuth understands them? Is he just generally hashtag positivity? <laughs> well, as, uh, he, he wrote a book on positivity, and he he has yeah, he did not positivity like, like a trolling book. No, a serious straight up. Yeah, Phil and... Hellmuth wrote a book about positivity. Yes. Okay, not about. I think, and I think it, it's about sort of manifesting what you want ah. and getting the outcomes that you want by believing so much in yourself and in your ability to win, like eyes on the prize. Um. And I mean, it's working. The man's delivered. Yeah. Where, where do you put like Phil Ivey and all those kinds of people? Um, I mean, I'm too, I've, I've been, to be honest, too much out of the scene for the last few years to really, I mean, Phil Ivey's clearly got, again, he's got that X factor. Um, he's so incredibly intimidating to play against. I've only played against him a couple of times, but when he like looks you in the eye and you're trying to run a bluff on him, oof, no one's made me sweat harder than Phil Ivey just... Um, my bluff, my bluff got through actually. Um, that was actually one of the most thrilling moments I've ever had in poker. Was it was in a Monte Carlo in a high roller. I can't remember exactly what the hand was, but um, I, I, you know, I three bet and then like just barreled all the way through, and he just like put his laser eyes into me, and it felt like he was just scouring my soul, and I was just like, hold it together, live, hold it together, and he and was like, you knew your hand was weaker. Yeah, I mean, I was bluffing. I, I presume, which, you know, there's a chance I was bluffing with the best hand, but I th I'm pretty sure my hand was worse. Um, and uh, and he folded. I was truly one of my, one of the deep highlights of my career. Did you show the cards or did you fold? Yeah. What you, you, should, you should never show in game. Like, because especially as I felt like I was one of the worst players at the table in that tournament. So giving that information unless i had a really solid plan that i was now like advertising oh look i'm capable of bluffing phil ivy but like why i would I, it's much more valuable to take advantage of the impression that they have of me which is like i'm a scared girl playing a high roller for the first time keep that going you know interesting but isn't there layers to this like psychological warfare that the scared girl might be way smart and then like to, to, to flip the tables. Do you think about that kind of stuff? Or oh, is, definitely. Is I mean, it better you, not always, to reveal information? I mean, generally speaking, you want to not reveal information. You know, the goal of poker is to be as deceptive as possible about your own strategies while elucidating as much out of your opponent about their own. So giving them free information, particularly if they're people who you consider very good players, any information I give them is going into their little database and being, I assume it's going to be calculated and used well. So I have to be really confident that my like meta gaming that I'm going to then do, or oh, they've seen this, so therefore that I'm going to be on the right level. Um, so it's better just to keep that little secret to myself in the moment. So how much is bluffing part of the game? Huge amount. So yeah, I mean, maybe actually, let me ask, like, wh what did it feel like with Phil Ivey or anyone else when it's a high stake, when it's a big, when it's a big bluff? Um, so a lot of money on the table. And maybe, I mean, what defines a big bluff? Maybe a lot of money on the table, but also some uncertainty in your mind and heart about like self-doubt. Well, maybe I miscalculated what's going on here, what the bets said, all that kind of stuff. Like, what does that feel like? I mean, it's, I imagine, comparable to, you know, running a, I mean, any kind of big bluff where you have a lot of something that you care about on the line, you know, so if you're bluffing in a courtroom, not that anyone should ever do that, or, yeah. you know, something equatable to that, it's, it's incredible. You know, in that scenario, you know, it was, I think it was the first time I'd ever played a 20, I'd won my way into this 25K tournament. 
that, so that was the buy-in, 25,000 euros. And I had satellited my way in because it was much bigger than I would never ever normally play. And, you know, I hadn't, I wasn't that experienced at the time. And now I was sitting there against all the big boys, you know, the Negranus, the Phil Ivies and so on. Um, and then uh, to like, you know, each, each time you put the bets out, you know, you put another bet out. Your card, yeah. I, I was on a what's called a semi bluff. So there were some cards that could come that would make my hand very, very strong and therefore win. But most of the time, those cards don't come. So that is a semi bluff because you're representing. What are you representing that you already have something? So I think in this scenario, I had uh, a flush draw. Two, two. So I had two clubs. Two, two clubs came out on the flop, and then I'm hoping that on the turn and the river one will come. So I have some future equity. I could hit a club and then I'll have the best hand, in which case, great. Um, and so I can keep betting and I'll want them to call. But I've also got the other way of winning the hand where if my card doesn't come, I can keep betting and get them to fold their hand. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's what the scenario was. Um, so I had some future equity, but it's still, you know, most of the time I don't hit that club. And so I would rather him just fold because I'm, you know, the pot is now getting bigger and bigger. And in the end, like I jam all, jam all in on the river. That's my entire tournament on the line. As far as I'm aware, this might be the one time I ever get to play a big 25K. You know, this was the first time I played one. So it was, it felt like the most momentous thing. And this was also when I was trying to build myself up, you know, build my name, a name for myself in, in poker. I wanted so to get respect. Destroy everything for you. It felt like it in the moment. Yeah. Like, I mean, it literally does feel like a form of life and death. Like your body physiologically yeah. is having that flight or fight response. What, what are you doing with your body? What are you doing with your face? Trying are to... you just like, what are you thinking about? <laughs> uh, you... More a mixture of like, okay, what are the cards? So in theory, I'm thinking about like, okay, what are, what are cards that look make my hand look stronger? Which, are, you know, which cards hit my perceived range from his perspective, which cards don't, um, what's the right amount of bet size to, you know, maximize my fold equity in this situation. You know, that's the logical stuff that I should be thinking about. But I think in reality, because I was so scared, because there's this, at least for me, there's a certain threshold of like nervousness or stress beyond which the like logical brain shuts off. And now it just gets into this like... It just like it feels like a game of wits, basically. Yeah. It's like of, of nerve. Can you hold your hold your resolve? Um, and it certainly got by that, like by the river. This, I think, by that point, I was like, I don't even know if this is a good bluff anymore. Yeah. But fuck it, let's yeah. do it. I'm your mind is almost numb from the intensity of that feeling. I call it. I call it the white noise, and <laughs> and that's a. And it, and it happens in all kinds of decision-making. I think anything that's really, really stressful. I can, I can imagine someone in like an important job interview, if it's like a job they've always wanted and they're getting grilled, you know, like Bridgewater style where they ask these really, like, really hard like mathematical questions. You know, that's, it's a really learned skill to be able to like subdue your flight or fight response. You know, what I think get from the sympathetic into the parasympathetic so you can actually, you know, engage the, that voice in your head and do those slow logical calculations. Because evolutionarily we you know if we see a lion running at us we didn't have time to sort of calculate the lion's kinetic energy and you know is it optimal to go this way or that way you just reacted and physically our bodies are well attuned to actually make right decisions but when you're playing a game like poker this is not something that you ever you know evolved to do and yet you're in that same flight or fight response um and so that's a really important skill to be able to develop to basically learn how to like meditate in the moment and calm yourself so that you can think clearly. But as you were searching for a, com a comparable thing, it's interesting because you, you just made me realize that bluffing is like an incredibly high stakes form of lying. 
you're 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 lying, and I don't think you telling get... a story. That's, that's, it's, it's, no, no, yeah. it's straight up lying. <laughs> in in the context of game, it, we don't. It's not a negative kind of lying. No, it's, it, but it is. Yeah, exactly. You are. You're saying, like, I, I'm. You're representing something that you don't have. And I was thinking, like, in how often in life do we have such high stakes of lying? Because I, I was thinking, um, certainly in high level military strategy, I was thinking. Um, when Hitler was lying to Stalin about his plans to invade the Soviet Union, mm. and so you're 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 talking to a person like your friends, and uh, you're fighting against the enemy, whatever the, the the formulation of that enemy is. But meanwhile, whole time you're building up troops on the border. Um, that's extremely. Wait, wait. So sense. Hitler and Stalin were like pretending to be friends. Yeah. Well, my history knowledge is terrible. That's oh, crazy. Yeah, yeah that there were. Uh, yeah, oh, man. Uh, and it worked because Stalin, until the troops crossed the border and invaded in Operation Barbarossa, where they th this storm of Nazi troops invaded large parts of the Soviet Union, and hence one of the, the biggest wars in human history mm -hmm. uh, began. Stalin for sure was thought that this was uh, never going to be uh, that Hitler is not crazy enough well, to invade the Soviet Union. That they it, and it makes geopolitically makes total sense to be collaborators and ideologically, even though there's a tension between communism and fascism or uh, national socialism, however you formulate it, it still feels like this is the right way to battle the West. Right. They uh, they were more ideologically aligned, you know. They they in theory had a common enemy, which yeah. was the West. So yeah. made made total sense. And in terms of negotiations and the way things were communicated, it uh, it seemed to Stalin that for sure that they would remain at least for a while uh, peaceful collaborators. And uh, that uh, and everybody everybody because of that in the Soviet Union believed that it was a huge shock when Kiev was invaded. And you, you hear echoes of that when I traveled to Ukraine, sort of the shock of the invasion. It's not just the invasion on one particular border, but the invasion of the capital city. And just like, mm -hmm. holy shit. Uh, especially at that time when you thought World War One, you realized that that was the war that, to end all wars. You would never have this kind of war. And holy shit, this, this person is mad enough to try to take mm -hmm. on this monster in the Soviet Union. Uh, so it's not no longer going to be a war of hundreds of thousands dead. It'll be a war of tens of millions dead. And um, yeah, but that, <laughs> like, it, you know, that's a very large scale kind of lie, but I'm sure there's in politics and geopolitics, that kind of lying happening all the time. Uh, and a lot of people pay financially and with their lives for that kind of lying. But in our personal lives, I don't know how often we, uh, maybe we. I think people do. I mean, like, think of spouses cheating on their partners, right? And then yeah. like having to lie, like, "Where were you last night?" Stuff oh, shit, like that. That's tough. Yeah. That's like true. that's. I think, you know, I mean, that, unfortunately, that stuff happens all the time, right? Yeah. So. Or having like multiple families. That one is great. Mm -hmm. When when each family doesn't know the other about the other one, and like maintaining that life, there, there's probably a sense of excitement about that too. Um, and, or it seems unnecessary. Yeah. Why? <laughs> well, just lying, like, like you know, uh, the truth ha finds a way of coming out, you know. Yes, but hence that's the thrill. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, people. I mean, and uh, you know, that's what, that's why I think actually, like, poker. What's 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 so interesting about poker is 
most of the best players I know, they're always exceptions, you know, they're always bad eggs. But actually, poker players are very honest people. I would say they are more honest than the average, you know, if you just took random, uh, random population sample. Um, because A, you know, I think, you know, humans like to have that most people like to have some kind of, you know, mysterious, you know, an opportunity to do something like a little mm-hmm. edgy. So we get to sort of scratch that itch of yeah. being edgy at the poker exactly. table where it's like, it's part of the game. Everyone knows, everyone knows what they're in for and that's allowed. And you get to like really get that out of your system. Um, and then also like we, poker players learned that, you know, I'll, I, you know, I would play in a huge game against some of my friends, even my partner, Igor, where we will be, you know, absolutely going at each other's throats, trying to draw blood in terms of winning each money off each other and like getting under each other's skin, winding each other up, um, doing the craftiest moves we can. But then once the game's done, the, you know, the winners and the losers will go off and get a drink together and have a fun time and like talk about it in this like weird academic way afterwards, because that, and that's why games are so great. Cause you get to like live out or like, this competitive urge that you know most people have. What's it feel like to lose? Like uh, we talked about bluffing when it worked out. What about when you when you go broke? So, like in a game, I, I'm you know, fortunately <laughs> I've never gone broke. Uh, you mean in like full life? Full life? Uh, no, no. Um, I know plenty of people who have. Um, uh, and I don't think Eagle would mind me saying he went. You know, he went broke once in poker. Well, you know, early on when we were together. Um, I feel like you haven't lived unless you've gone broke. Oh, I, I, yeah. I, I, in some sense. Right. Some well, fundamental I, sense. I, I mean, I'm happy. I, I've sort of lived through it vicariously through him when he did it at the time. But yeah, what's it like to lose? Well, it depends. So it depends on the amount. It depends what percentage of your net worth you've just lost. Um, it depends on your brain chemistry. It really, you know, varies from person well, to person. You have a but very for- cold calculating way of thinking about this. Uh, so it depends what percentage. <laughs> well, it did. It really does, right? Yeah, I ended, yeah it's, you true, know? it's and I, true. But that's, I mean, uh, that's another thing poker trains you to do. You see, you you see everything in percentages, um, or you see everything in like ROI or expected hourlies or cost benefit, etc. You know, so um, that's I, I. One of the things I've tried to do is calibrate the strength of my emotional response to the to the win or loss that I've received. Because it's it's no good if you like you know you have a huge emotional dramatic response to a tiny loss, um, or on the flip side you have a huge win and you're sort of so dead inside that you don't even feel it. Well, that's yeah. you know that's a shame. I want my emotions to calibrate with reality as much as possible. Um, so yeah, what's it like to lose? I mean, I've had times where I've lost you know busted out of a tournament that I thought I was going to win in. You know, especially if I got really unlucky or um, or I make a dumb play. Uh, where I've gone away and like, you know, kicked kicked the wall, punched a wall. I like nearly broke my hand one time. Like, um, I'm a lot less competitive than I used to be. Like, I was like pathologically competitive in my like late teens, early twenties. I just had to win at everything, um, and I think that sort of slowly waned as I've gotten older. According but, to you, yeah. According to me, I, I don't know if others would say the same, right? Um, I feel like ultra competitive people. Like I've heard Joe Rogan say this to me. It's like I think he's a lot less competitive than he used to be. I don't know about that. Oh, I believe it. No, I totally believe it. Like, I, because as you get, you can still be like, I care about winning. Like when, you know, I play a game with my buddies online or, you know, whatever it is, poly- Polytopia is my current obsession. Like, <laughs> when th- I- <laughs> thank you for passing on your obsession to me. Are you playing now? Yeah, I'm playing now. We got to have a game. 
But I'm terrible, and I enjoy playing terribly. I don't want to have a game because that's going to pull me into your monster of of like uh, competitive play. It's important. It's an important skill. I'm enjoy playing on the. I can't. I, uh, you just do the. You just do the points thing. You know, against the bots. Yeah, against the bots, and I can't even do the. Well, uh, there's like a hard one and there's a very and then hard one. that's crazy, one. yeah. That's crazy. I can't, I don't even enjoy the hard one. The crazy I really don't enjoy because it's intense. You have to constantly try to win as opposed to enjoy building a little world. And Yeah, more. no, no, no. There's no time for exploration in Polytopia. You got to get, well, when once you graduate from the crazies, then you can come play the... the graduate from the crazies. Yeah, so in order to be able to play a decent game against like, you know, our, our group, um, you'll need to be... You'll need to be consistently winning you know, like ninety percent of games against fifteen crazy bots. Yeah, and you'll be able to like there be I could I could teach you it within a day honestly. Um, how how to beat the crazies? How to beat the crazies, and then and then I you'll be ready like for the big leagues. Generalizes uh, to more than just Polytopia, but okay. Uh, why were we talking about Polytopia? Uh, you're losing hurts. Losing hurts. Oh yeah, yes, competitiveness over time. Um, oh yeah. I think it's more that at least for me. I still care about playing, about winning when I choose to play something. It's just that I don't see the world as as zero sum as I used to be, you know? Um, I think as you, one gets older and wiser, you start to see the world more as a positive sum thing. And, or at least you're more aware of externalities of, of scenarios, of competitive interactions. Um, and so, yeah, I just, like, I'm more, uh, and, and I'm more aware of my own, you know, like, if I have a really strong emotional response to losing... And that makes me then feel shitty for the rest of the day. And then I like, beat myself up mentally for it. Like, I'm now more aware that, that ha- that's unnecessary negative externality. So I'm like, okay, I need to find a way to turn this down, you know, dial this down a bit. Was poker the thing that has, if you think back at your life and think about some of the lower points of your life, like the darker places you've gone in your mind, did it have to do something with poker? Like, what, did losing spark the... Um, the descent into darkness, or was it something else? Um, I think my darkest points in poker were when I was wanting to quit and move on to other things, but I felt like I hadn't ticked all the boxes I wanted to tick. Yeah, like I wanted to be the most winningest po- female player, which is by itself a bad goal. Um. You know, that was one of my initial goals. And I was like, well, I haven't, you know, and I wanted to win a WPT event. I've won one of these, I won one of these, but I want one of those as well. Yeah. And that sort of, again, like it's a drive of like over-optimization to random metrics that I decided were important um, without much wisdom at the time, but then like carried on. Um, that made me continue chasing it longer than I still actually had the passion to chase it for. And I don't, I don't have any regrets that you know I played for as long as I did because who knows, you know, I would I wouldn't be sitting here, I wouldn't be living this incredible life that I'm living now. Um, this is this is the height of your life right now. This is it, peak this experience, is, this... absolute pinnacle, here in your in your <laughs> robot land. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with, your, with your creepy light. Um, no, it is. I, I mean, yeah. I I wouldn't change a thing yeah. about my life right now, and I feel very blessed to say that. Um, so, but. The dark times were in the sort of like 2016 to 18, even sooner really, where I was like, I had stopped loving the game and I was going through the motions and I would 
that and and then I was like, you know, I would take the losses harder than I needed to. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, it's another one. And it was, I was aware that like I felt like my life was ticking away. And I was like, is this gonna be what's on my tombstone? Oh yeah, she played the game of, you know, this zero-sum game of poker yeah. slightly more optimally than her next opponent. Like, cool, great, legacy, you know? So <laughs> uh, I just wanted, you know, I, there was something in me that knew I needed to be doing something more directly impactful um, and just meaningful. It was just like a search for meaning. And I think it's a thing a lot of poker players, even a lot of, I imagine any games players who sort of love intellectual pursuits, um, you know, I think you should ask Magnus Carlsen this question. I, yeah, I walking away on. from chess, right? Yeah, like it must be so hard for him. You know, he's been on the top for so long. And it's like, well, now what? He's got this incredible brain, like what to put it to. Um, and yeah, it's... It's this weird uh, moment where I've just spoken with people that won multiple gold medals at the Olympics and the depression hits hard after you win. Dopamine it's, crash. Because it, it's a kind of a goodbye, saying goodbye to that person, to all the dreams you had, the thought you thought would give meaning to your life. But in fact... Life is full of constant pursuits of meaning. It's it doesn't mm. you don't like arrive and figure it all out and there's endless bliss. No, it continues going on and on. You constantly have to figure out to rediscover yourself. And so for you, like that struggle to say goodbye to poker, mm. you have to like find the the next. There's always a bigger game. That's the thing. Yeah. That's my like motto. Is like, what's the next game? And more importantly because obviously game usually implies zero sum. Like what? what's a game which is like omni-win? Omni-win? Omni-win. Why is omni-win so, so important? Because if everyone plays zero sum games, that's a fast track to either completely stagnate as a civilization, but more actually far more likely to extinct ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, like the playing field is finite. Yeah, we, you, know, we you know, nuclear powers are playing... Uh, you know, a game of poker with their, with you know, but their chips are nuclear weapons, right? And the the stakes have gotten so large that if anyone makes a single bet, you know, fires some weapons, the the playing field breaks. I made a video on this. Like, it, you know, the 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 fight the the playing field is finite, and if we keep playing these advers adversarial zero sum games, uh, thinking that we, you know, in order for us to win, someone else has to lose, or if we lose, that you know, someone else wins, that that will extinct us. It's just a matter of when. What do you think about that uh, mutually assured destruction, that very simple, almost to the point of caricaturing game theory idea that does seem to be at the core of why we haven't blown each other up yet with nuclear weapons? Do you think there's some truth to that, this kind of stabilizing force of mutually assured destruction? And do you think that's going to hold up <laughs> through the 21st century? I mean, it's... It has it has held, yes. There's there's definitely truth to it that it was a, a you know it's a Nash equilibrium. Yeah, are you surprised it held this long? Um, Isn't it crazy? It is crazy when you factor in all the like near miss accidental firings. Yes, that's makes me wonder. Like you know you know are you familiar with the like quantum suicide thought experiment? No. Where it's basically like uh, you have a you know like a Russian roulette type scenario. Uh, hooked up to some kind of quantum event, you know, uh, particle splitting um, or paraparticle splitting. And if it, you know, if it goes A, then the gun doesn't go off and it goes B, then it does go off and it kills you. 
because you can only ever be in the universe, you know, assuming like the Everett branch, you know, multiverse theory, you will always only end up in the in the branch where you continually make, you know, option A comes in. Yeah. But you run that experiment enough times, it gets, starts getting pretty damn, you know, out of the, 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 the tree gets huge. There's a million different scenarios, in, but you'll always find yourself in this, in the one where it didn't go off. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so from that perspective, you, it, you are essentially immortal. Because someone and and you will only find yourself in the set of observers that make it down that path. Yeah. So it's 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 that, kind of that a, doesn't mean that does well that, that does doesn't mean you're still, you're still not going to be fucked at some point in your life. No, of you, course not. No, I'm not. Be, I'm not advocating like that. We're all in, immortal because of this. It's just like a fun thought experiment. And the point is, it, it like raises this thing of like these things called uh, observer selection effects, which Bostrom and uh, Nick Bostrom talks about a lot, and I think people should go read. Um, it's really powerful, but I think it could be overextended that logic. I'm not sure exactly how it can be i just feel like you can get you can um overgeneralize that logic somehow well no i mean it leads you into like solipsism which is a very dangerous mindset again if everyone like falls into solipsism of like well i'll be fine that's a great way of creating a very you know self-terminating environment um but my point is is that with the nuclear weapons thing um there have been at least i think it's 12 or 11 um near misses of like just stupid things like uh there was moonrise over norway and it made weird reflections off some glaciers in the mountains which set off i think the alarms of norad uh norad radar and that put them on high alert nearly ready to shoot and it was only because um the head of the russian military happened to be at the un in new york at the time that they go like well wait a second why would why would they fire now when their guy is there? And it was only that lucky happenstance, which doesn't happen very often, where they didn't then escalate it into firing. And there's a bunch of these different ones. Stanislav Petrov like saved the the person who should be the most famous person on earth because he's probably on expectation saved the most human lives of anyone, like billions of people, by ignoring Russian orders to fire because he felt in his gut that actually this was a false alarm, and it turned out to be, you know, very hard thing to do. Um, and there's so many of those scenarios that I can't help but wonder at this point that we aren't having this kind of like selection effect thing going on because you look back and you're like, geez, that's a lot of near misses. But well, of course, we don't know the actual probabilities that they would have lent, each one would have ended up in nuclear war. Maybe they were not that likely. But still, the point is, it's a very dark, stupid game that we're playing. Um, and it is an absolute moral imperative, if you ask me, to get as many people thinking about ways to make this like very precarious. Because we're in a Nash equilibrium, but it's not like we're in the bottom of a pit. You know, if you would like map it topographically, um, it's not like a stable ball at the bottom of a thing. We're not in equilibrium because of that. We're on the top of a hill with a ball balanced on top. And just at any little nudge could send it flying down and, you know, nuclear war pops off and hellfire and bad times. Uh, on the positive side, life on Earth will probably still continue. And another intelligent civilization might still pop up. Maybe. Uh, several yeah. depends. Pick your X risk. Depends on the X risk. Nuclear war, sure. That's one of the perhaps less bad ones. Uh, <laughs> green goo through synthetic biology, very bad. Will turn, you know, destroy all uh, organic matter uh, through, you know, it's basically like a biological uh, paperclip maximizer, also bad. Or AI type, you know, mass extinction thing as well would also be bad. Shh, they're listening. Uh, There's a robot right behind you. Okay, wait. uh, So let me ask you about this from a game theory perspective. Do you think we're living in a simulation? Do you think we're living inside a video game created by somebody else? (laughs) I think well so what was the second part of the question do I think we're living in a simulation and 
uh, a simulation that is observed by somebody for purpose of entertainment. So like a video game, are we listening? Are we, because there's a, it's like Phil Hellmuth type of situation, yeah. right? Like um, there's a creepy level of like, this is kind of fun and interesting. Like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. I mean, that could be somehow integrated into the evolutionary process where it, the way we perceive and- our, Are you asking me if I believe in God? Um, Sounds like it. Kind of, but God seems to be not optimizing uh, in the different formulations of God that we conceive of. He doesn't seem to be, or she, optimizing for uh, like personal entertainment. <laughs> or maybe well, the older gods did, but the, 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 you know, just like basically like a teenager in, in their mom's basement watching create a fun right. universe to observe so, what kind of crazy shit might happen. Okay, so to try and answer this, um, do I think there is some kind of ex extraneous intelligence to like our, you know, classic measurable universe that we you know can measure with convent you know through our current physics and uh, uh, instruments? I think so. Yes. Um, partly because I've had just small little bits of evidence in my own ex in my own life, which have made me question. Like, so I was a diehard atheist, um, even five years ago. Uh, you know, I got into like the rationality community, big fan of less wrong, uh, continue to be an incredible uh, resource. Um, but I've just started to have too many little <sighs> snippets of experience, which don't make sense with the current sort of purely materialistic um, explanation of how reality works. Um, Isn't that just like a humbling practical realization that we don't know how reality works? Isn't that just a reminder to yourself? So yeah, no, it's it's a reminder of epistemic humility yeah. because I fell too hard. You know, same same as people like I think you know many people who are just like my religion is the way. This is the correct way. This is the work. This is the law. Um, you are immoral if you don't follow this. Blah blah blah. I think they are lacking epistemic humility. They're a little too too much hubris there. But similarly, I think the sort of the Richard Dawkins brand of atheism is too is too rigid as well and doesn't. You know, I th there's a way to try and navigate these questions, which still honors the scientific method, which I still think is our best sort of realm of like reasonable inquiry, you know, a method of inquiry. Um, so an example, um, I have two kind of notable examples that like really rattled my my uh, my cage. Uh, the first one was actually in 2010, early on in, um, uh, quite early on in my poker career. And I the 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 uh the remember the Icelandic volcano that erupted that like shut down kind of all Atlantic airspace um and I it meant I got stuck down in the south of France I was there for something else um and I, I couldn't get home and someone said well there's a big poker tournament happening in Italy maybe do you want to go I was like oh right sure like let's you know got a train across found a way to get there um and it, the buy-in was five thousand euros which was much bigger than my bankroll would normally allow and so I uh played a feeder tournament won my way in kind of like i did with the monte carlo big one um 
so then I won my way, you know, from 500 euros into 5,000 euros to play this thing. And on day one of then the big tournament, which turned out to have, it was the biggest tournament ever held in Europe at the time. It got over like 1,200 people, absolutely huge. And I remember they dimmed the lights uh, for before, you know, the normal shuffle up and deal uh, to tell everyone to start playing. And they played uh, Chemical Brothers' Hey Boy, Hey Girl, um, which I don't know why it's notable, but it was just like a really, it was a song I always liked. It was like a, one of these like pump me up songs. And I was sitting there thinking, oh yeah, it's exciting. I'm playing this really big tournament. And out of nowhere, just suddenly this voice in my head, just, and it sounded like my own sort of, you know, when you say, you think in your mind, you hear a voice kind of, right? At least I do. Um, and so it sounded like my own voice and it said, you are going to win this tournament. And it was so powerful that I got this like wave of like, you know, sort of goosebumps down my body. And like, I even, lo- I remember looking around being like, did anyone else hear that? And obviously people are in their phones, like no, no one else heard it. And I was like, okay. Six days later, I win the fucking tournament out of 1,200 people. And I, I, to the, I, I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. Um, okay, yes, maybe I have that feeling before every time I play and it's just that I happen to, you know, because I won the tournament, I retroactively remembered it. Mm-hmm. But or, that's the, just- or the feeling... Gave you a kind of now from the film Helmuthian. Well, exactly. Book, like it gave you a confident, a deep confidence. And it did. It definitely did. Like I remember then feeling this, like sort of. Well, although I remember then on day one, I then went and lost half my stack quite early on, and I remember thinking like, oh, "Well, that was bullshit." You know, <laughs> what kind of premonition is this? Yes. Thinking, "Oh, I'm out." But you know, I managed to like keep it together and recover, and then, and then just went like pretty perfectly from then on, and. Either way, it definitely instilled me with this confidence. And I don't want to put a, I don't, I can't put an explanation. Like, you know, was it some, you know, huge extra, extra, you know, supernatural thing driving me? Mm-hmm. Or was it just my own self-confidence and so on that just made me make the right decisions? I don't know. And I don't, I'm not going to put a frame on it. And I, I, think, I think I know a good explanation. So we're a bunch of NPCs living in this world created by, in the simulation. And then, People, uh, uh, not people, creatures from outside of the simulation uh, sort of can tune in and play your character. And that feeling you got is somebody just like, they got to play a poker tournament through you. Honestly, it felt like that. (laughs) It did actually feel a little bit like that. But it's been 12 years now. I've retold the story many times. Like, I don't even know how much I can trust my memory. You're just an NPC retelling the same story because they just played the tournament and left. Yeah, they're like, oh, that was fun, cool. Yeah, you know. cool, next um, it, <laughs> And it now was, you're, for the rest of your life, left as a boring NPC retelling this well, story and of it, greatness. Well, it was, and what was interesting was that after that, then I didn't obviously win a major tournament for quite a long time. And it left, that was, that was actually another sort of dark period because I had this incredible, like the highs of winning that, you know, just on a like material level were insane, winning the money. I was on the front page of newspapers because there was like this girl that came out of nowhere and won this big thing. Um... And so again, like sort of chasing that feeling was was difficult. Um, but then on top of that, there was this feeling of like almost being touched by something yeah. bigger that was like, uh. Um, and also maybe, did you have a sense that I might be somebody special? Like the, this kind of, I, I think that's the confidence thing that uh, maybe you could do something special in this world after all kind of feeling? I, I definitely, I mean, this is a thing I think everybody wrestles with to an extent, right? We all, 
we are truly the protagonists in our own lives. Yeah. And so it's a natural bias, human bias, to feel to feel special. And I think, and in some ways we are special. Every single person is special because you are that, that the universe does, the world literally does revolve around you. That's the thing in, in some respect. But of course, if you then zoom out and take the amalgam of everyone's experiences, then no, it doesn't. So there is this shared sort of objective reality, but sorry, this objective reality that is shared, but then there's also this subjective reality, which is truly unique to you. And I think both of those things coexist and it's not like one is correct and one isn't. And again, anyone who's like, uh, oh no, your lived experience is everything versus your lived experience is nothing. No, it's 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 a blend between these two things. They can exist concurrently. But but there's a certain kind of sense that at least I've had my whole life, and I think a lot of people have this, is like, well, I'm just a, like this little person. Surely I can't be one of those people that do the big thing, right? There's all these big people doing big things. There's yeah. big actors and actresses, mu big musicians. There's big uh, business owners and all that kind of stuff, scientists and so on. I, you know, I have my own subject experience that I enjoy mm. and so on, but there's like a different layer, like, um, surely I can't do those great things. I mean, one of the things just having interacted with um, a lot of great people, I realized, no, they're like just the same, the same, the same humans as me. And that realization I think is really empowering. And like for you to, to remind yourself- but are they? Huh? But are they? Are they? <laughs> uh, uh, well, in depends on some. Yeah, they're like a bag of insecurities and yes, um, peculiar sort of like the, their own little weirdnesses and so on. Um, I, I should say also not. Um, they have the capacity for brilliance, but they're not generically brilliant. Like, you know, we, we, we tend to say this person or that person is brilliant, mm -hmm. but really, no, they're just like sitting there and thinking through stuff, just like the rest of us. Right. I, I think they're in, in the habit of thinking through stuff seriously, and they've built up a habit of not allowing them their mind to get trapped in a bunch of bullshit and minutiae of day-to-day -day life. They really think big ideas, but those big ideas it's like allowing yourself the freedom to think big to realize that you 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 can be one that actually solved this particular big problem first identify a big problem that you care about and then like i can actually be the one that solves this problem and like allowing yourself to believe that and i think sometimes you do need to have like yeah. that shock go through your body and a voice tells you you're going to win this tournament well exactly and and whether it was it's it's this idea of uh useful fictions so again, like going through the all like the ra the classic rationalist training of less wrong, where it's like you want your map, you know, the 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 image you have of the world in your head to as accurately match up with how the world actually is. Yeah, you want the map and the territory to perfectly align as you know you want it to be as an accurate representation as possible. I don't know if I fully subscribe to that anymore. Having now had these moments of like feeling of something either bigger. Or just actually just being overconfident. Like there's there is value in overconfidence sometimes. I do. If you would, you know, take you know take Magnus Carlsen, right? If he, I'm sure from a young age he knew he was very talented, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was also had something in him to. Well, actually, maybe he's a bad example because he truly is the world's greatest. Um, but someone who 
it was unclear whether they were going to be the world's greatest, but ended up doing extremely well because they had this innate, deep self-confidence, this like even overblown uh, idea of how good their relative skill level is. That gave them the confidence to then pursue this thing and the like with the kind of focus and dedication that it requires to excel in whatever it is you're trying to do, you know? And so there are these useful fictions and that's where I think I diverge slightly with the classic, um, the classic sort of rationalist community um, because that's an, a field that is worth studying um, of, of like how the stories we tell, what the stories we tell to ourselves, even if they are actually false and even if we suspect they might be false, um, how it's better to sort of have that like little bit of faith, um, the, like value in faith, I think, actually. And that's partly another thing that's like now led me to explore, um, you know, the concept of God, whether you want to call it a simulator, <laughs> the classic the theological thing. I think we're all like elucidating to the same thing. Now, I don't know. I'm not saying, you know, because obviously the Christian God is like, you know, all benevolent, um, endless love, the simulation one of the, at least one of the simulation hypotheses is like, as you said, like a teenager in its bedroom who doesn't really care, doesn't give a shit how it, about the individuals within there. It just like wants to see how this thing plays out because it's curious and it could turn it off like that. You know, where on the, you know, where on the sort of psychopathy to benevolent spectrum God is, I don't know. Um, but having, having this, just having a little bit of faith that there is something else out there that might be interested in our outcome is I think an essential thing actually for people to to find a because it creates commonality between it's it's something we can all share and like it like it is uniquely humbling of all of us to an extent it's like a, a like a common objective, um, but b it gives people that little bit of like reserve you know when things get really dark and I do think things are going to get pretty dark over the next few years, um, but it gives that like to think that there's something out there that actually wants our game to keep going. I keep calling it the game, you know. Uh, it's a thing C and I, like, we call it the game. Um, you, you, uh, you and C is AKA Grimes. Grimes, yeah. We call, we call what the game? Everything, the whole thing? Every, yeah, we, we, we joke about like- So everything is a game? Not, well, the, the universe, like what if, what if it's a game and the, the goal of the game is to figure out like, well, either how to beat it, how to get out of it. You know, maybe, maybe, the, maybe this universe is an escape room, like a giant escape room. And the goal is to figure out, put all the pieces to puzzle, figure out how it works in order to like unlock this like hyperdimensional key and get out beyond what it is. That's no, but, but then the, so you're saying it's like different levels and it's like a cage within a cage within a cage and never like one cage at a time. You figure out how to escape right. that. Um, like, and you level up, you know, like us up. becoming multiplanetary would be a level up or us, you know, find, figuring out how to upload our consciousnesses to the thing that would probably be a leveling up or spiritually, you know, humanity becoming more combined and, and less adversarial and, and, uh, bloodthirsty and us becoming a little bit more enlightened. That would be a leveling up. You know, there's many different frames to it, yeah. whether it's physical, you know, digital, uh, or like metaphysical. I wonder what the levels, I think, I think level one for earth is probably the biological evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. It's like going from single cell organisms to, to early humans. Then maybe level two is what whatever is happening inside our minds and creating ideas and creating technologies. That's like evolutionary process of ideas. Mm -hmm. And then uh, multiplanetary is interesting. Is that fundamentally different from what we're doing here on earth? Probably because it allows us to like exponentially scale. It, it 
it, it delays the Malthusian trap, right? It, it, it's a way to keep the playing field, get, to make the playing field get larger so that we c- it can accommodate more of our stuff, more of us. Um, and that's a good thing, but I don't know if it like fully solves this issue um, of, uh, well, this thing called Moloch, which we haven't talked about yet, but um, which is basically, I call it the the god of unhealthy competition. Yeah, let's go. Let's go to Moloch. What's Moloch? You you did a, a great video on Moloch and one aspect of it, the application of it to one yeah. aspect. Instagram of our beauty filters. Yeah. <laughs> Through <laughs> very niche. Uh, I wanted to start off small. Um, so uh, Moloch was originally um, coined as well. So, so apparently, back in the like uh, Canaanite times, it was this ancient Carthaginian. I can never say it, Carthaginian. Somewhere around like 300 BC or two, 200 AD. I don't know. Um, there was supposedly this death cult who would sacrifice their children to this awful demon god thing called, they called Moloch. Um, in order to get power, to win wars. So really dark, horrible things. And it was literally like about child sacrifice. Whether they actually existed or not, we don't know. But in mythology, they they did. And this god that they worshipped was this thing called Moloch. And then, it, I don't know, it seemed like it was kind of quiet throughout history um, in terms of mythology beyond that until um, this movie Metropolis uh, in 1927 talked about... Um, this, you, know, you see that there was this incredible futuristic city that everyone was living great in. Um, but then the protagonist goes underground into the sewers and sees that the city is run by this machine. And this machine basically would just like kill the workers all the time because it was just so hard to keep it running. And they were always dying. So there was all this suffering that was required in order to keep the city going. And then the protagonist has this vision that this machine is actually this demon Moloch. So again, it's like this sort of like mechanistic consumption of, of humans in order to get more power. Um, and then Allen Ginsberg wrote a poem in the 60s, um, which incredible poem called Howl about this thing, Moloch. Um, and a lot of people sort of quite understandably take the the interpretation of that he's uh, that he's talking about capitalism um but then the bet like the sort of piece de resistance that's moved Moloch into this idea of game theory uh was Scott Alexander of Slate Star Codex um wrote this incredible one literally I think it might be my favorite piece of, of writing of all time it's called Meditations on Moloch everyone must, must go read it uh and I say Codex is a, is a blog. It's a blog, yes. Yeah, we can link to it in the show notes or something, right? Um, no, don't. Okay. I, I, yes, yes. <laughs> but I, I like how you, how, how you assume I'm, I have a professional operation going on here. I, I, I mean, I, I shall try to remember. To... What do you? <laughs> what do I? What do you? What do you want? You're giving the impression of it. Yeah, yeah. I'll like, please. If I if you I don't, what? please somebody in the comments remind me. I'll, yes, I'll, so, yeah, I'll if help you. If you don't know this blog, it's one of the it's best so blogs. Good ever probably yes. you should probably be following it yes um, our blog still a thing i think they yeah. are still a thing yeah. yeah he's migrated onto substack but yeah it's still a blog um anyway substack better not fuck things up but i hope not yeah, yeah i hope cause... they don't i hope they don't turn mollicky yeah. Which will mean well, something to people when we well, continue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I stop interrupting for once, no, no, go, go, go on. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so he writes he writes this this piece, Meditations on Moloch, and basically. He analyzes the poem and he's like, okay, so it seems to be something relating to where competition goes wrong. And, you know, Moloch was historically this thing of like where people would sacrifice a thing that they care about, in this case, children, their own children, 
uh, in order to gain power, a, a competitive advantage. And if you look at almost everything that sort of goes wrong in our society, it's that same process. Um, so with the Instagram beauty filters thing, um, you know, if, if you're trying to become a, a, a famous in, uh, Instagram model, you are incentivized to post the hottest pictures of yourself that you can. You know, you're trying to play that game. Um, there's a lot of hot women on Instagram. How do, how do you compete against them? You post, post really hot pictures and that's how you get more likes. As technology gets better, um, you know, more makeup techniques come along. Um, and then more recently, these beauty filters where like at the touch of a button, it makes your face look absolutely incredible um, compared to your natural natu natural face. Uh, these, these technologies come along. It's Everyone is incentivized to, to that short-term strategy. Um, but over on, on net, it's bad for everyone because now everyone is kind of like feeling like they have to use these things. And these things, like, they make you, like, the reason why I talked about them in this video is because I noticed it myself. You know, like, I, I was trying to grow my Instagram for a while. I've given up on it now. But, um, yeah, and I noticed these filters, how good they made me look. And I'm like, well, I know that everyone else is kind of doing Go it. Go subscribe to Liv's Instagram. <laughs> Please, so I don't uh, have to use the filters. <laughs> Uh, post a bunch of yeah, make make, make it blow up. Uh, so yeah, yeah. it's it's. But there was you felt the pressure actually. Exactly, you these short term incentives to do this like this thing that like either sacrifices your integrity or something else um, in order to like stay competitive, um, which on aggregate turns like creates this like sort of race to the bottom spiral where everyone else ends up in a situation which is worse off than if they hadn't start you know than it were before. Kind of like if um like a at a football stadium, uh, it, like the system is so badly designed, a competitive system of like everyone sitting and having a view that if someone at the very front stands up to get an even better view, it forces everyone else behind to like adopt that same strategy just to get to where they were before. But now everyone's stuck standing up. Like, so you need this like top down God's eye coordination to make it go back to the better state. But from within the system, you can't actually do that. So that's kind of what this Moloch thing is. It's this thing that makes people sacrifice, uh, values in order to optimize for the the winning the, the game in question the, the short-term game but this this Moloch, do you, can you attribute it to any one centralized source or is it an, an emergent phenomena from a large collection of people exactly that it's it's an emergent phenomena it's it's a force of game theory um it's a force of bad incentives on a multi-agent system where you've got more, you know, prisoner's dilemma is technically a kind of Moloch-y you know, system as well, but it's just a two-player thing. But um, another word for Moloch is multipolar trap, um, where basically you just got a lot of different people all competing for some kind of prize, um, and it would be better if everyone didn't do this one shitty strategy. But because that strategy gives you a short-term advantage, everyone's incentivized to do it, and so everyone ends up doing it. So the responsibility for I mean, social media is a really nice place for a large number of people to play game theory. And so uh, they also have the ability to then design the, the, the rules of the game. And uh, is it on them to try to anticipate what kind of, like to do the, the thing that poker players are doing to, to run simulation? Ideally, that would have been great if, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack and all the, you know, the Twitter founders and everyone, if they had at least just run a few simulations of how their algorithms would, you know, different types of algorithms would turn out for society, that would have been great. That's really difficult to do that kind of deep philosophical think about, uh, thinking about humanity, actually. So not, not kind of this level of how do we optimize engagement 
or what brings people joy in the short term, but how is this thing going to change the way people see the world? How is it gonna get morphed and iterative games played into something that will change society forever? That's, that requires some deep thinking. That's. I hope there's meetings like that inside companies, but I haven't there seen aren't. them. There aren't, that's the problem. And and it's it's difficult because like when you're starting up a social media company, you know, you're aware that you, you've got investors to please, there's you bills to pay, um, you know, there's only so much R&D you can afford to do. You've got all these like incredible pressures, and bad, you know, bad incentives to get on and just build your thing as quickly as possible and start making money. And, you know, I don't think anyone intended when they built these social social media platforms and, and just to like preface it. So the reason why, you know, the social media is relevant because it's a very good example of like everyone these days is optimizing for, you know, clicks, um, whether it's the social media platforms themselves, because, you know, every click gets more, you know, impressions and impressions pay for, you know, uh, they get advertising dollars or whether it's individual influencers or, you know, whether it's the New York Times or whoever, they're trying to get their story to go viral. So everyone's got this bad incentive of using, you know, as you called it, the clickbait industrial complex. Um, that's a very mollicky system because everyone is now using worse and worse tactics in order to like try and win this attention game. Um, and yeah, so ideally these companies would have had enough slack in the beginning in order to run these experiments to see, okay, what are the ways this could possibly go wrong for people. What are the ways that Moloch, they should be aware of this concept of Moloch and realize that it's, any, whenever you have a highly competitive multi-agent system, which social media is a classic example of millions of agents all trying to compete for likes and so on, and you try and bring all this complexity down into like very small metrics, such as number of likes, number of retweets, whatever the algorithm optimizes for, that is a like, guaranteed recipe for this stuff to go wrong and become a race to the bottom. I think there should be an honesty in founders. I think there's a hunger for that kind of transparency of like, we don't know what the fuck we're doing. This is a fascinating experiment. We're all running as a, hum as a human civilization. Let's try this out. Yes. And like, actually just be honest about this. That we're all like these weird rats in a maze. Not, none of us are controlling it. There's this kind of sense like the founders the CEO of Instagram or whatever, Mark Zuckerberg has a control and he's like, like with strings playing people. No, they're- He's at the mercy of this is like everyone else. He's just like trying to do his best. And, and like, I think putting on a smile and doing over uh, polished videos about how Instagram and Facebook are good for you, I think is not the right way to uh, to actually ask some of the deepest questions we get to ask as a society. Right. How do we design the game such that we build a better world? I think a big part of this as well is people. There's this there's this philosophy, particularly in Silicon Valley, um, of well, techno optimism. Technology will solve all our issues. And there's a steel man argument to that where, yes, technology has solved a lot of problems and can potentially solve a lot of future ones. But it can also, it's a, always a double-edged sword and particularly as, you know, technology gets more and more powerful and we've now got like big data and we're able to do all kinds of like psychological manipulation with it and so on. Um, it's, it, technology is not a va values neutral thing. People think, I used to always think this myself, it's like this naive view that, oh, technology is completely neutral. It's just, it's the humans that either make it good or bad. No, to the point we're at now, the technology that we are creating, they are social technologies. They literally, 
dictate how humans now form social groups and so on beyond that and beyond that it also then that gives rise to like the memes that we then like coalesce around and that you know if you have the stack that way where it's technology driving social interaction which then drives like mimetic uh mimetic culture and like the, which ideas become popular that's moloch mm-hmm. and the we need the other way around we need it so we need to figure out what are the good memes what are the good um values that we think are we we need to optimize for that like makes people happy and healthy and like keeps society as robust and safe as possible then figure out what the social structure around those should be and only then do we figure out technology but we're doing the other way around and you know like as much as i love in many ways the culture of silicon valley and like you know i do think that technology has you know i don't want to knock it it's done so many wonderful things for us same with capitalism um there are we have to like be honest with ourselves. We're getting to a point where we are losing control of this very powerful machine that we have created. Can you redesign the machine within the game? Can can you just have? Can you understand the game enough? Okay, this is the game, and this is how we start to reemphasize the memes that matter, the the memes that bring out the best in us. Uh, you know, like the way. I try to be in real life and the way I try to be online is to be about kindness and, mm-hmm. and love. And I feel like I'm sometimes get like criticized for being naive and all those kinds of things. But I feel like I'm just trying to live within this game. I'm trying, trying to be to authentic. Con- yeah. But also like, Hey, it's kind of fun to do this. Like you guys should try this too. You know that. And that's like trying to redesign some aspects of the game within the game. Um, Is that possible? I don't know. But I think we should try. Uh, I don't think we have an option but to try. Well, the other option is to create new companies or to pressure companies uh, that or anyone who has control of the rules of the game. I think we need to be doing all of the above. I think we need to be thinking hard about what are the kind of positive, healthy memes. uh, you know, as, as as Elon said, he who controls the memes controls the universe. Um, he said that. I think he did. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, there's truth to that. Yeah. It's very there is wisdom in that because memes have driven history. You know, we we are we are a cultural species. That's what sets us apart from chimpanzees and everything else. We have the ability to learn and evolve through culture, yeah. as opposed to biology or like you know classic physical constraints. And that means culture is incredibly powerful and we can create and become victim to very bad memes or very good ones. Um, but we do have some agency over which memes, you know, we, we sub- but not only put out there, but we also like subscribe to. Um, so I think we need to take that approach. We also need to, you know, because I don't want the, 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 the you know, I'm making this video right now called The Attention Wars, which is about like how Moloch, it, like the media machine is this Moloch machine. Uh, well, is this is this kind of like blind, dumb thing that where everyone is optimizing for engagement in order to win their share of the attention p- pie. Um, and then if you zoom out, it's really like Moloch that's pulling the strings because the only thing that benefits from this in the end, you know, like our, our information ecosystem is breaking down. Like we are you look at the state of the US it's in we're in a we're in a civil war it's just not a physical war it's 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 a it's an information war 
and people people are becoming more fractured in terms of what their actual shared reality is like truly like an extreme left person an extreme right person like they 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 literally live in different worlds in their in their in their minds at this point and it's getting more and more amplified and this this force is like a like razor blade pushing through everything it doesn't matter how innocuous a topic is it will find a way to split into this you know bifurcated culture war and it's fucking terrifying because that maximizes attention and that's like an emergent moloch type force right that takes any anything any topic and cuts through it so that it can split nicely into two groups one that's well it's it's whatever yeah it's, it, it, all everyone is trying to do within the system is just maximize whatever gets them the most attention because they're just trying to make money so they can keep their thing going right yeah. and the way the 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 best emotion for getting attention in well because it's not just about attention on the internet it's engagement that's the key thing right in order for something to go viral you need people to actually engage with it they need to like comment or retweet or whatever um and of all the emotions that uh you know there's like seven classic shared emotions that studies have found that all humans even from like un, un previously uncontacted tribes have um some of those are negative you know like sadness, uh, disgust, anger, et cetera. Some are positive happiness, um, excitement, and so on. The one that happens to be the most useful for the internet is anger, because anger is it's such an active emotion. If you want people to engage, if someone's scared, that, and, and I'm not just like talking out my ass here, there are studies here that have looked into this. Um, Whereas, like, if someone's like disgusted or fearful, they actually tend to then be like, uh, "I don't want to deal with this." So they're they're less likely to actually engage and share it, and so on. They're just going to be like, Ugh. "Whereas if they're enraged by a thing, well, now they're like that triggers all the like the the, the old tribalism emotions, um, and so that's how then things get sort of spread, you know, much more easily. They they outcompete all the other memes in the ecosystem, um, and so this like. The, the, the attention economy, the, the the wheels that make it go around, are is rage. Um, I did a you know a tweet. The the, the 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 problem with raging against the machine is that the machine has learned to feed off rage, because it is feeding off our rage. That's the thing that's now keeping it going. So the more we get angry, the worse it gets. Um, so the Moloch in this attention, in in the war of attention, is constantly maximizing rage. What it is optimizing for is engagement, and it happens to be that engagement. Um, is well propaganda. You know, it's like, I mean, it just sounds like every everything is is putting is, is more and more things are being put through this like propagandist lens of winning whatever the war is in question, whether it's the culture war or the Ukraine war. Yeah. Well, I think the silver lining of this. Do you think it's possible that in the long arc of this process, you actually do arrive at greater wisdom and more progress? It just in the moment it feels like people are. Be tearing each other to shreds over ideas. But if you think about it, one of the magic things about democracy and so on is you have the blue versus red constantly fighting. It's almost like they're in discourse, creating devil's advocate, making devils out of each other. And through that process, discussing ideas, like almost really embodying different ideas just to yell at each other. And through the yelling over the period of decades, maybe centuries, fi figuring out a better system. Like in the moment, it feels fucked up. Right. But in the long arc, it actually is pr productive. I hope so. Um, that said, we are now in the era of, just as we have weapons of mass destruction with nuclear weapons, 
you know, that can break the whole playing field. We now are developing weapons of informational mass destruction, information weapons, you know, WMDs that basically can be used for propaganda or just manipulating people however they, you know, is needed, whether that's through dumb TikTok videos or, you know, there are significant resources being put in. Um, I don't mean to sound like, you know, too doom and gloom, but there are bad actors out there. That's the thing. There are, there are plenty of good actors within the system who are just trying to stay afloat in the game. So we're yeah. effectively doing monarchy things. But then on top of that, we have actual bad actors who are intentionally trying to like manipulate the other side into doing things. And using, uh, so because it's a digital space, they're able to use uh, artificial actors, meaning bots. Exactly. Botnets, you know, and this is a whole new situation that we've never had before. Yeah, it's exciting. You know, you know what I want to do? You know what I want to do that, um, because there is, you know, people are talking about bots manipulating and uh, have like malicious bots that are basically spreading propaganda. I want to create like a bot army for like that, like fights that, yeah, exactly. For love that fights though, that, I mean. You know, there's, there. I mean, there's truth to fight fire with fire. It's like, but how you always have to be careful whenever you create Again, like the, Moloch is very tricky. Yeah, yeah. Hitler and, was trying to spread love too. Well, yeah, so we thought. But I, you know, I, I, I agree with you that like that is a thing that should be considered. But there is, again, everyone. The road to hell is paved in good intentions, and this is there's there's always unforeseen circumstances, you know, outcomes, uh, externalities of you trying to adopt a thing, even if you do it in the very best of faith. But you can learn the lesson, lessons of history. If you can run some Sims on it first. Absolutely. Let's. But you know. but also, there's certain aspects of a system as we've learned through history that do better than others. Like for example, don't have a dictator. So, um, like if I were to create this bot army, it's not good for me to have full control over it because in the beginning I might have a good understanding of what's good and not. But over time, that starts to get deviated because I'll get annoyed at some assholes and I'll right. think, okay, wouldn't it be nice to get rid of those assholes? But then that power starts getting to your head, you right. become corrupted. That's basic human nature. So distribute the power. Somehow. We need we need a a love botnet on a DAO. <laughs> a DAO love botnet. Yeah, but and without a leader, like without exactly a distributed, right. Well, yeah, without any kind of centralized. Yeah, without even, you know, basically is the more control, the more you can decentralize the control of a thing uh, to people, you know, but the the, the But then you still need the ability to coordinate because yeah. that's the issue when if th something is too, you know, that's really, to me, like the culture wars is, it, the, the bigger war we're dealing with is actually between the, the like the sort of the, I don't know what even the term is for it, but like centralization versus decentralization. That's the tension we're seeing. Yeah. Power in control by a few versus completely distributed. And the trouble is, if you have a fully centralized thing, then you're at risk of tyranny. You know, Stalin type things can happen uh, or completely distributed. Uh, now you're at risk of complete anarchy and chaos where you can't even coordinate to like on, you know, when there's like a pandemic or anything like that. So it's like, what is the right balance to strike between these two well, structures? Can't Moloch really take hold in a fully decentralized system? That's the, one of the dangers too. Yes. The, the very vulnerable to so the, a dictator can commit huge atrocities but they can also make sure the the infrastructure works and uh trains well, they, run they have that god's eye view at least yeah. they have the ability to create like laws and rules that like force coordination yeah. which stops moloch but 
then you're vulnerable to that dictator getting infected with like this with some kind of psychopathy type thing. What's uh what's reverse Moloch? So great question. So I, that's where so I've been working on this series. It's been driving me insane for the last year and a half. Uh, I did the first one a year ago. I can't believe it's nearly been a year. Uh, the second one, hopefully, will be coming out in like a month. Um, and my goal at the end of the series is to like present because basically I'm painting the picture of like what Moloch is and how it's affecting almost all these issues in our in our society and how it's you know driving. It's like kind of the generator function, as people describe it, uh, of existential risk. And then at the end of that, wait, wait, the generative function of existential risk. So you're saying Moloch is sort of the engine that creates ex- a, a bunch, a bunch of X risks. Yes, not all of them. Like, like a, uh, you know, a. Um, it's a cool phrase. Generative function. It's not my existential- phrase. It's, it's Daniel Schmachtenberger. Oh, I got that from him. Of course, um, all, all of things. Ideas. It's like all roads lead back to Daniel Schmachtenberger. I the, think the dude is the dude is brilliant. Yeah. He's, he's and after really, that, really it's Mark brilliant. Twain. <laughs> but, yeah. but anyway, sorry, uh, yeah. um, totally rude interruptions so, from me. No, it's fine. Uh, so not all X risks. So like an asteroid technically isn't because it's um, you know it's just like this one big external thing. It's not like a competition thing going on. But you know synthetic biology. You know bioweapons that's one because everyone's incentivized to build even for defense you know bad bad viruses you know just to threaten someone else etc or ai technically the race to agi is kind of potentially a molecule situation um but yeah so if moloch is this like generator function that's driving all of these issues over the coming century that might wipe us out what's the inverse and so far what i've gotten to is this character that I want to put out there called Win-Win. Because Moloch is the god of lose-lose, ultimately. It mm-hmm. masquerades as the god of win-lose, but in reality, it's lose-lose. Everyone ends up worse off. So I was like, well, what's the opposite of that? It's Win-Win. And I was thinking for ages, like, what's a good name for this character? And then the more I was like, okay, well, I, I, don't try and, th- you know, think through it logically. What's the vibe of Win-Win? Mm-hmm. And to me, like, in my mind, Moloch is like, and I address as it in the video, like it's red and black. It's kind of like very, you know, hyper-focused on its one goal, you must win. Um, so win-win is kind of actually like these colors. It's like purple, turquoise. Mm-hmm. Um, it loves games too. It loves a little bit of healthy competition, but constrained, like kind of like before, like draw, knows how to ring fence zero-sum competition into like just the right amount, uh, whereby its externalities are, can be controlled and kept positive. And then beyond that, it also loves cooperation, coordination, love, all these other things. Um, but it's also kind of like mischievous. Uh, like, it, you know, it will have a good time. It's not like kind of like boring, you know, like, oh, God, it's, it's, it knows how to have fun. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it can get like, it can get down. Um, but ultimately, it's like unbelievably wise and it just wants the game to keep going. Um, and I call it Win Win. Uh, Win Win. That's a good like pet name. Yes. Win Win. The, I think the. Win Win. Win-win, right? <laughs> and I think its formal name when it has to do like official functions is uh, Omnia. Omnia. Yeah. From like om- omniscience, kind of what's, what, why Omnia? You just it's like, like Omnia? Omni-win. Omni-win. But I'm open to suggestions. I would like, you know, and this is- I like Omnia. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's, but there's that's an like... angelic kind of sense to Omnia though. So win-win is more fun. So exactly. it's, more, it's more like a, uh, it embraces the- the 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 fun aspect i mean there there is something about sort of um there's some aspect to win win interactions that requires embracing the, the chaos of the game 
and enjoying the game itself. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what that is. That's almost like a Zen-like appreciation of of the game itself, not optimizing for the consequences of the game. Right. Uh, well, it's it's recognizing the value of competition in of itself. Yeah. About it's not like about winning. It's about you enjoying the process of having a competition and not knowing whether you're going to win or lose this little thing. But then also being aware that you know, what's the boundary? How big do I want competition to be? Because one of the reasons why Moloch is doing so well now in our society, in our civilization is because we haven't been able to ring fence competition. Uh, you know, and so it's just having all these negative externalities and it's we've completely lost control of it. Um, you know, it's, I think my guess is, and now we're getting really like, you know, metaphysical technically, but I, th- I think uh, we would be we'll be in a more interesting universe if we have one that has both pure cooperation, you know, lots of cooperation, and some pockets of competition than one that's purely competition uh, co- cooperation entirely. Like it's good to have some little zero sumness bits, um, but I don't know that fully, and I'm not qualified as a philosopher to know that. And that's what reverse Moloch. So this kind of win-win creature is an uh, system is an antidote to the Moloch system. Yes. And I don't know how it's going to do that. Um, but it's I, good to kind of try to start to formulate different ideas, different frameworks of how we think about that. Exactly. At, at, the, at the small scale of a collection of individuals, a large scale of a society. Exactly. It's, it's a meme. I think it's, I think it's an example of a good meme. And I'm open, I'd love to hear feedback from people if they think it's, at, you know, they have a better idea or it's not, you know, but it's the direction of meme that we need to spread. This idea of like, look for the win-wins in life. Well, on the topic of beauty filters, so in that particular context where uh, Molly creates uh, negative consequences, what, you know, Dostoevsky said beauty will save the world. What is beauty anyway? Mm. What, uh, it, it it would be nice to just try to discuss what kind of thing we would like to converge towards in our understanding of what is beautiful. So to me, I think something is beautiful when it can't be reduced down to easy metrics. Like if you think of a tree, what is it about a tree, like a big, ancient, beautiful tree, right? What is it about it that we find so beautiful? It's not, you know, the, the you know, what are the sweetness of its fruit or the value of its lumber. It's, it's this entirety of it that is, there, there, there's these immeasurable qualities. It's like almost like a qualia of it. Mm. Um that's both like it walks this fine line between pattern. Well, it's got lots of patternicity, but it's not overly predictable. Um, you know, again, it walks this fine line between order and chaos. It's a very highly complex system. Um, in the, you know, you can't. It's evolving over time. You know, the, the definition of a complex versus, and this is another Schmachtenberger thing. You know, a complex versus a complicated system. A complicated system can be sort of broken down into bits understood and then put that together. A complex system is kind of like a black box. It does all this crazy stuff, but if you take it apart, you can't put it back together again because it's, there's, there's all these intricacies. And also very importantly, like the, the sum of the parts, sorry, the sum of the whole is much greater than the sum of the parts. And that's where the beauty lies, I think. And I think that extends to things like art as well. Like, 
there's something there's something immeasurable about it. There's does something it, we can't break down to a, a narrow metric. Does that extend to humans, you think? Yeah, absolutely. So how can Instagram reveal that kind of beauty, the complexity of a human being? Oof, good question. Um, and this takes us back to our dating sites and Goodreads, I think. Mm, <laughs> very good question. I mean, uh, well, I know what it shouldn't do. It shouldn't try and like, right now, you know, one of the, <laughs> I was talking to like a social media expert recently because I was like, there's such I hate, a thing like, as a social media expert. Oh yeah, you there are like agencies out there that you can like outsource because I'm I'm thinking about working with one to like. So I'm, I want to start a podcast. Yes. Uh, you should. You should have done it a long time ago. Working on it. It's <laughs> going to be called Win Win. Um, nice. And That's it's going to be about this like positive some stuff. Awesome. Uh, and the thing that you know they they all come back and say is like, well, you need to like figure out what your thing is. You know, you need to narrow down what your thing is and then just follow that have a like a sort of a formula because that's what people want they want to know that they're coming back to the same thing and that's a, the advice on youtube tw twitter you name it and that's why and, and and the trouble with that is that it's it's a complexity reduction and generally speaking complex you know complexity reduction is bad it's making things more it's, it's an oversimplification not that simplification is, is a bad thing um but when you're trying to in take you know what is social media doing it's trying to like encapsulate the the human experience and put it into digital form and and commodify it to an extent that you so you do that you compress people down into these like narrow things and I, that's why i think it's it's kind of ultimately fundamentally incompatible with at least my definition of beauty yeah it's interesting because there is some sense in which a simplification sort of in the in the einstein kind of sense of a really complex idea, it's a simplification in a way that still captures some core power of an idea of a person is also beautiful. And so maybe it's possible for social media to do that. A presentation, a, a sort of a slither, a, sl a, a slice, a look into a person's life that reveals something real about them. Mm but in a simple way, in a way that can be displayed graphically or through words. Some way, I mean, in some way, Twitter can do that kind of thing. A very few set of words can reveal the intricacies of a person. Mm. Of course, the, the viral machine that spreads those words uh, often results in people taking the thing out of context. Not, it, 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 the people often don't read tweets in the context of the human being that wrote them. The full, the full history of the tweets they've written, the education level, the humor level, the, the, the worldview they're playing around with, so all that context is forgotten and people just see the different words. So that can lead to trouble. But in, in a certain sense, if you do take it in context, it reveals some kind of, quirky little beautiful idea or a profound little idea from that particular person mm. that shows something about that person. So in that sense, Twitter can be more successful. If we're talking about Mollocks, is driving a better kind of incentive. Yeah, I mean, how they can, like if, if we were to rewrite, if, is there a way to rewrite the Twitter algorithm so that it stops being the like, the fertile breeding ground of the culture wars, because that's really what it is. It's, um, I mean, maybe I'm giving it, you know, Twitter too much power, you know, power, but just the more I looked into it and I had conversations with um, 
Tristan Harris uh, from Center of Humane Technology, and he explained it as like t- Twitter is where you have this amalgam of human culture, and then this terribly designed algorithm that amplifies the the craziest people um, and the the angriest the angriest most uh, divisive takes and amplifies them, and then the media, the mainstream media, because all the journalists are also on Twitter, they then are informed by that. And so they draw out the stories they can from this already like very boiling lava of 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 rage and then spread that, you know, to their millions and millions of people who aren't even on Twitter. Um and so I honestly I think if I could press a button and turn them off, I probably would at this point, because I just don't see a way it being compatible with healthiness, but that's not gonna happen. Um and so at least one way to like stem the tide and make it less mollicky would be to um, change, at least if like it was on a subscription model, then it's now not optimizing for, in you know, uh, impressions. Because basically what it wants is for people to keep coming back as often as possible. That's how they get paid, right? Um, every time an ad gets shown to someone and the way is to get people constantly refreshing their feed. So you're trying to encourage addictive behaviors. Whereas if someone, um, if, if they moved on to at least a subscription model, then they're getting the money either way, whether someone comes back to the site once a month or 500 times a month, they get the same amount of money. So now that takes away that incentive, you know, to use technology, you know, to, to build, to design an algorithm that is maximally addictive. Um, that would be one way, for example. Yeah, but um, you still want people to, yeah, I, I just feel like that just slows down, creates friction in the virality of things. But that's that, good. We need I, to slow down I, virality. It's good. It's one way. Virality is Moloch, to be clear. So Moloch is always negative then. Yes. By definition. Yes. Competition. But then, but then I disagree with you. Competition is not always negative. Competition is neutral. I disagree with you that all virality is negative then, uh, as Moloch then. Because I, I, it's a good intuition because we have a lot of data on virality being negative. But I happen to believe that the core of human beings, so most human beings want to be good Mm-hmm. more than they want to be bad to each other. And so I think it's possible, it might be just harder to engineer systems that enable virality, but it's possible to engineer systems that are viral, that enable virality, and the kind of stuff that rises to the top is things that are positive. And positive mm-hmm. not like Lala positive, it's more like win-win, meaning a lot of people need to be wise. challenged. Like, wise things, yes. Yeah, you grow from it, it might challenge you, you might not like it, but you ultimately grow from it. Yes. Uh, and yeah, ultimately bring people together as opposed to tear them apart. Yeah, I deeply want that to be true. And I very much agree with you that people at their core are on average good as opposed to, you know, care for each other as opposed to not. Like, I, you know, I think it's actually a very small percentage of people are truly like wanting to do just like destructive, malicious things. Most people are just trying to win their own little game and they don't mean to be, you know, they're just stuck in this badly designed system. Um, that said, the current structure, yes, is the current structure means that virality is optimized towards Moloch. That doesn't mean there aren't exceptions. You know, sometimes positive stories do go viral and I think we should study them. I think there should be a whole field of study into understanding, you know, identifying memes that 
you know, above a certain threshold of the population agree is a positive, happy, bringing people together meme, the kind of thing that, you know, brings families together that would normally argue about cultural stuff at the table, uh, at the dinner table. Um, Identify those memes and figure out what it was, what was the ingredient that made them spread that day. Um, And also like, uh, not just like happiness and connection between humans, but uh, connection between humans in other ways that enables like productivity, like cooperation, yes. s- solving difficult problems, and all those kinds of stuff. Um, you know, this, so it's not just about let's let's be happy and have a fulfilling lives. It's also like let's build cool shit. Yeah, let's get which is the spirit of collaboration, which is deeply anti Moloch, right? That's that's uh, it's not using competition. It's like you know, Moloch hates collaboration and coordination and people working together. And that's, you know, again, like the internet started out as that and it and um, it could have been that, but because of the way it was sort of structured um, in terms of, uh, you know, very lofty ideal, they wanted everything to be open source or open source and also free. And, but they needed to find a way to pay the bills anyway, because they were still building this on top of our old economics system. Um, and so the way they did that was through third party adv- advertisement, but that meant that things were very decoupled. You know, you've got this third party interest, um, which means that you're then like people are having to optimize for that. And that is the, you know, the, the actual consumer is actually the product, not the, not the, 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 the person you're making the thing for. You're in, in the end, you stop making the thing for the advertiser. And so that's why it then like breaks down. Um, yeah, like it's, it, there, there's no clean solution to this. Um, and I, I, it's a really good suggestion by you, actually, to like um, figure out how we can optimize virality for positive sum mm-hmm. topics. I shall be the general of the love bot army. Um, <laughs> Distributed. <laughs> <laughs> Distributed. Distributed. No, okay, yeah. The power, just even in saying that, the power already went to my head. No. Okay. You've talked about quantifying your thinking. We've been talking about this, sort of a game theoretic view on life. Um, and putting probabilities behind estimates, like if you think about different trajectories you can take through life, just actually analyzing life in a game theoretic way, like your own life, like personal life. Mm-hmm. You, I think you've given an example that you had an honest conversation with Igor about like how long is this relationship gonna last? So similar to our sort of marriage problem kind of discussion, having an honest conversation about the probability of things that we sometimes are a little bit too shy or scared to think of in a probabilistic terms. Can you speak to that kind of way of reasoning, uh, the good and the bad of that? Can, can, can you do this kind of thing with human relations? Yeah, so the, the the scenario you're talking about, it was like... Yeah, tell me about that scenario. Yeah, uh, I think it was about a year into our relationship um, and we were having a fairly heavy conversation because we were trying to figure out whether or not I was going to sell my apartment. Well, you know, he had already moved in, but I think we were just figuring out what like our long-term plans would be. Should we, should we buy a place together, et cetera? When you guys are having that conversation, are you like drunk out of your mind on wine or is it sober and you're actually having a serious, like how, sober. how do you get to that conversation? Because most people are kind of afraid to have that kind of serious conversation. Well, so, uh, you know, our relationship was very, well, first of all, we were good friends for a couple of years before we even, you know, got, you know, romantic. Yeah. Um, and when we did get romantic, it was very, 
clear that this was a big deal. It wasn't just like another like ra- you know, it wasn't a random thing. Um, and so the probability of it being a big deal was high. It was already very high. And then we'd been together for a year, and it had been pretty golden and wonderful. So you know, there was a lot of foundation already where we felt very comfortable having a lot of frank conversations. But Igor's mo has always been much more than mine. He he was always from the outset like just in a relationship. Radical transparency and honesty is the way because the truth is the truth, whether you want to hide it or not. You know, where it will come out eventually. And um, it, if you aren't able to accept difficult things yourself, then how could you possibly expect to be like the most integral version? That, you know, you can't. The, re- the relationship needs this bedrock of like honesty as a foundation more than anything. Yeah, and, that's really interesting, but I would like to push against some of those ideas, but, okay. right. but, but that's the down, down the line, yes, throw them up. Uh, I and, just rudely interrupt. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we, we'd been about together for a year and things were good and we were having this hard conversation and and then he was like, well, okay, what's the likelihood that we're going to be together in three years then? Because I think it was roughly a three-year time horizon. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, ooh, interesting. And then we were like, actually, wait, before you say it out loud, let's both write down our predictions formally. Because mm-hmm. um, we'd been like, we were just getting into like effective altruism and rationality at the time, which is all about making, you know, formal predictions as a means of uh, measuring your own, um, well, your your, your own uh, foresight, essentially, in a quantified way. So we like both wrote down our percentages and we also did a one-year uh, prediction and a 10-year one as well. So we got percentages for all three. And then we showed each other. Um, and I remember like having this moment of like, ooh, because for the 10-year one, I was like, ooh, well, I mean, I love him a lot, but like a lot can happen in 10 years, you know, and um, we've only been together for, you know, so I was like, I think it's over 50%, but it's definitely not 90%. And then I remember like wrestling, I was like, oh, but I don't want him to be hurt. I don't want him to, you know, I don't want to give a number lower than his. And I remember thinking, I was like, uh-uh, don't game it. This is an exercise in radical honesty. Mm -hmm. So just give your real percentage. And I think mine was like 75%. And then we showed each other. And luckily, we were fairly well aligned. Um, (laughs) But honestly, even if we weren't... 20%. (laughs) It definitely definitely would have... If his had been consistently lower than mine, that would have rattled me for sure. Whereas if it had been the other way around, I think he would have, he's just kind of like a water off the a duck's back type of guy. He'd be like, okay, well, all right, we'll figure this out. Well, uh, did you guys provide air bars on the estimate? Like the level ones? They yeah. came built in. We didn't give formal plus or minus error bars. I didn't draw any or anything like that. Well, the, the, I guess that's the question I have is, did you feel informed enough to make such decisions? Because like, I feel like if you were, if I were to do this kind of thing rigorously, mm. I would want some data. Uh, I, I would want to sort of, one of the assumptions you have is you're not that different from other relationships, right? And so I want to I want to have some data about the you way want the base rates, yeah, and and also actual trajectories of relationships. I would love to have um, like time series data about the ways that relationships fall apart or prosper. Uh, how they collide with different life events, losses, job changes, moving. Uh, both partners find jobs. Only one has a job. I want that kind of data mm-hmm. and how often the different trajectories change in life. Like how rep, how informative is your past to your future? That's a whole thing. Like, I, Can you look at my life and have a good prediction about 
in terms of my characteristics and my relationships of what that's gonna look like in the future or not. I don't even know the answer to that question. I'll be very ill-informed in terms of making the probability. I would be far, yeah, I, I, I just would be under-informed. I would be under-informed. I'll be over-biasing to my prior experiences, I think. Right. But as long as you're aware of that and you're honest with yourself, I still and, and you're honest with the other person. Say, look, I have really wide error bars on this for the following reasons. Yeah. That's okay. I still think it's better than not trying to quantify it at all if you're trying to make really major irreversible life decisions. And I feel also the romantic nature of that question. For me personally, I would I I try to live my life thinking it's very close to hundred percent. Like Allowing myself, actually, the this is this is the difficulty of this is allowing myself to think differently. I feel like has a psychological consequence. That's where that that's what's one of my pushbacks against radical honesty is uh, this one one particular perspective. On so, so you're saying you would you would rather give a falsely high percentage to your partner? Going back to uh, uh, the, the in order the, to sort the of wise create this additional film. optimism, Helmuth. Yes. Of uh, <laughs> fake it till you make it, the, the positive, the power positivity. of positive thinking. Hashtag positivity. Yeah, yeah. hashtag. Um, the hashtag. <laughs> well, so that, and this comes back to this idea of useful fictions. Yeah. Right? And I, I, I agree. I don't think there's a clear answer to this, and I think it's actually quite subjective. Some people this works better for than others. Yeah. Um, you know, to be clear, Igor and I weren't doing this f- formal prediction in it. Like, we we did it with very much tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like we were going to make, I don't think it even would have ma- drastically changed what we decided to do even. We kind of just did it more as a fun exercise. Um, but the consequence of that fun exercise, you really actually kind of, there was a deep honesty to it too. Exactly. It was a deep, and it was, just, yeah, it was just like this moment of reflection. I'm like, oh, wow, I actually have to think like through this quite critically and so on. And and it's also what was interesting was I, you know, I got to like check in with what my, what my, what my desires were. So there was one thing of like what my actual prediction is, but what are my desires and could these desires be affecting my predictions and so on. And, you know, that's a, that's a method of rationality. And I personally don't think it loses anything in terms of, I didn't take any of the magic away from our relationship, quite the opposite. Like it brought us closer together because it was like, we did this weird fun thing um, that I appreciate a lot of people find quite strange. Um, And I think it was somewhat, you know, unique in our relationship that both of us are very, you know, we both love numbers. We both love statistics. We're both poker players. Um, so this this was kind of like our safe space anyway. For others, you know, one part one partner like really might not like that kind of stuff at all, in which case this is not a good exercise to do. You know, I don't recommend it to everybody. Um, but I do think there's, you know, it's interesting sometimes to poke holes in the, or, you know, probe at these things that we consider so sacred that we can't try to quantify them. But which is interesting because that's in tension with like the idea of what we just talked about with beauty and like what makes something beautiful, the fact that you can't measure everything about it. Um, and perhaps something shouldn't be tried to measure. You know, maybe it's wrong to completely try and value the utilitarian, you know, put a utilitarian frame of measuring the the, the utility of a tree in, in, in its entirety. I don't know. Maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. I'm, I'm ambivalent on that. But overall, people have too many biases that people are overly biased against trying to do like a, a quantified cost benefit analysis on really tough life decisions. Um, you know, they're like, oh, just go with your gut. It's like, well, sure, but guts, our, our, our intuitions are best f- suited for things that we've got tons of experience in. 
then we can really, you know, trust on it if it's a decision we've made many times. But if it's like, should I marry this person or should I buy this house over that house? You only make those decisions a couple of times in your life, maybe. Um, well, I, I would love to know, there's, there's a balance, probably is a personal balance to strike, is the amount of rationality you, you apply to a question versus... Um, the useful fiction, mm -hmm. the fake it till you make it. For example, just talking to soldiers in Ukraine, you ask them, what's the probability of you winning, Ukraine winning? Um, almost everybody I talk to is 100%. Wow. And you listen to the experts, right? They, they, they say all kinds of stuff. Right. They are... They first of all, the morale there is higher than probably, and I've I've never been to a war zone before this, but I've read about many wars, and I think the morale in Ukraine is higher than almost anywhere I've read about. It's every single person in the country is proud to fight for their country. Wow! Uh, everybody, not just soldiers, not everybody. Why do you think that is specifically more than you know in other wars? Um, I think because there's a, perhaps a, a dormant desire for the citizens of this country to find the identity of this country because it's been mm. going through this 30-year process of different factions and political bickering. And they haven't had, as they talk about, they haven't had their independence war. They say all great nations have had an independence war. They had to fight for their independence, for the discovery of the identity, of the core of the ideals that unify us. And they haven't had that. There's constantly been factions, there's been divisions, there's been pressures from empires, from United States and from Russia, from NATO and Europe, everybody telling them what to do. Now they wanna discover who they are. And there's that kind of sense that we're going to fight for the safety of our homeland, but we're also gonna fight for our identity. And that, um, uh, on top of the fact that there's just, if you look at the history of Ukraine, and there's certain other countries like this, there are certain cultures are feisty in their pride of being part, of being the citizens of that nation. Mm. Ukraine is that, Poland was that. There's You just look at history. In certain countries, you do not want to occupy. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, both Stalin and Hitler talked about Poland in this way. They're like, this is... This is a big problem. If we occupy this land for prolonged periods of time, they're going to be a pain in their ass. Like they're not going to be want to be occupied. And certain other countries are like pragmatic. They're like, well, you know, leaders come and go. I guess mm. this is good. You know, they're Ukraine just doesn't have Ukrainians don't seem throughout the 20th century don't seem to be the kind of people that just like sit calmly and let the quote unquote occupiers um, in in uh, impose their. That, that's uh, that's rules. interesting though because you said it's you know it's always been under conflict and leaders have come and yeah. gone. Yeah. So you would expect them to actually be the opposite under that. Like, yeah. Reasoning. I, because but, well because they're it's a very fertile land. Mm. It's great for agriculture. Right. So a lot of people want to. I mean I think they've developed this culture because they've constantly been occupied by different people for the different peoples, and so. Uh, Maybe there is something to that where you've constantly had to feel like within the blood of the generations, there's the struggle for um, against the man, against the imposition of 
uh, rules against oppression and all that kind of stuff, and that stays with them. So there's a there's a will there, um, but you know a lot of other aspects are also part of it that has to do with the reverse Moloch kind of situation where social media has definitely played a part of it. Um, also, different charismatic individuals have had to play a part. The fact that uh, the president of the nation Zelensky stayed in Kiev during the the invasion uh, was is a huge inspiration to them because um, most leaders, as you could imagine, when the capital of the nation is under attack, the wise thing, the smart thing that the United States advised Zelensky to do is to flee and to to be the leader of the nation from a from a distant place. Right. He said, "Fuck that! I'm staying put." You know, everyone around him there was a pressure to leave, and he didn't. And that that in you know those singular acts um, really can unify a nation. There's a lot of people that criticize Zelensky within Ukraine uh, before the war. He was very unpopular, mm. even still. But they put that aside for the for the especially that singular act of staying in the capital. Yeah, a, a lot of those kinds of things come together to 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 create something well, within people. But these things always, of course, though, like the you know which how zoomed out of a view do you want to take? Because yeah, you describe it. It's like an anti moloch thing happened within Ukraine because it brought the Ukrainian people together in order to fight a common enemy. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. In the end, we don't know how this is all going to play out, right? Um, but if you zoom it out from a level, you know, on a global level, they're coming together to, you know, fight that. That could, you know, that that could make a conflict larger. You know what I mean? I don't. I don't know what the right answer is here. Um, yeah, I, it seems like a good thing that they came together. I, but I like. We don't know how this is all going to play out. If if this all turns into nuclear war, we'll be like, okay, that was the bad. That was the. Oh yeah. So I was describing the the reverse Moloch for the local level. Exactly. Yeah. Now this is where the experts come in, and they say, well, if you uh, channel most of the resources of the nation and the nation supporting Ukraine into the war effort. Are you not beating the drums of war that is much bigger than Ukraine? In fact, even the Ukrainian leaders are speaking uh, of it this way. This is not a war between two nations. This is this is the early days of a world war. If we don't play this correctly, yes. Uh, and they, the, and we need cool heads from our leaders. So, you, from Ukraine's perspective, we need to win. Ukraine needs to win the war. Because what does winning the war mean? Is coming up, coming to uh, peace negotiations, an agreement that guarantees no more invasions, and then you make an agreement about what land belongs to who, right? And that that's you stop that, and and to sh basically, from their perspective, is you want to demonstrate to the rest of the world who's watching carefully, including Russia and China, and different players on the geopolitical stage that this kind of conflict is not going to be productive right? if you engage in it. So you want to teach everybody a lesson, let's not do World War III. It's not. It's going to be bad for everybody. It's a, it's a lose-lose. It's a deep lose-lose. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't but, matter. <laughs> so, but they, you know, um, but it, and I think that's actually a correct, uh, when I zoom out 
I mean, the 99% of what I think about is just individual human beings and human lives and just that war is horrible. Mm -hmm. But when you zoom out and think from a geopolitics perspective, we should realize that it's entirely possible that we will see a World War III in the 21st century. And this is like a dress rehearsal for that. And so the way we play this uh, as a as a human civilization will will define whether we do or don't have a World War Three. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, uh, how we discuss war, how we discuss nuclear war, the kind of leaders we we elect and uh, prop up, the kind of memes we circulate, because you have to be very careful when you're being. Uh, pro-Ukraine, for example, you have to realize that you're being, um, you are also indirectly feeding the ever-increasing military-industrial complex. Mm -hmm. So you have to be extremely careful that uh, when you say pro-Ukraine or pro-anybody, you're, you're pro-human beings, uh, not pro-the machine exactly. that uh, that uh, creates narratives that says it's pro-human beings, but it's actually, if you look at the raw use of uh, funds and resources, it's actually pro-making weapons and shooting bullets and dropping bombs. Right, the real, we have to just somehow get the meme into everyone's heads that the real enemy is war itself. That's the enemy we need to defeat. And that doesn't mean to say that there, you know, there isn't justification for small local scenarios, you know, ad adversarial adversarial conflicts. You know, if you have a a leader who is starting wars, you know, they're on the side of team war. Basically, it's not that they're on the side of team country, whatever that country is. It's they're on the side of team war. So that needs to be stopped and put down. But you also have to find a ways that your corrective measure doesn't actually then end up being co opted by the war machine and creating greater war. Again, the playing field is fi finite. The scale of in conflict is now getting so big that the, you know the, the weapons that can be used are so mass destructive um, that we can't afford another giant conflict. We just we won't make it. What existential threat, in terms of us not making it, are you most worried about? What existential threat to human civilization? We got like You're let's down go, a dark path, huh? This is good. But no, well, no, it's a dark. No, I was like, uh, well, while we're in the in the somber place, we might as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of my best friends are dark paths. Um, <laughs> uh, what what worries you the most? We mentioned uh, asteroids. We mentioned yeah. AGI, uh, nuclear weapons. The the one that's on my mind the most, mostly because I think it's the one where we have actually a real chance to move the needle on in a positive direction or more specifically stop some really bad things from happening, really dumb, avoidable things, is uh, bio-risks. Bio um, so... In what, in what what kind of bio-risks? In terms so many of, fun options. Oh, yeah, so many. So, of course, like, we have natural risks from natural pandemics, you know, naturally occurring viruses or pathogens. Um, and then also as time and technology goes on and technology becomes more and more democratized and, you know, into the hands of more and more people, um, the risk of synthetic pathogens, um, you know, and whether or not you fall into the camp of COVID was, you know, gain of function, accidental lab leak, or whether it was purely naturally occurring, um, 
either way, we are f- facing a future where uh, synthetic pathogens or like artificial human human meddled with pathogens um, either accidentally get out or get into the hands of bad actors who you know whether they're omnicidal maniacs you know um, either way. And so that means we need more robustness for that. And you would think that us having this nice little dry run, which is what, as awful as COVID was, um, you know, and all those poor people that died, it was still like uh, like child's play compared to what a future one could be in terms of fatality rate. Um, and so you'd think that we would then be coming, we'd be much more robust in our pandemic preparedness. Um, and meanwhile, the budget, uh, in the last two years for the US. Um, sorry, they just did this, uh, I, I can't remember the name of what the actual budget was, but it was like a, a multi-trillion dollar budget that the US just set aside. And originally in that, you know, considering that COVID cost multiple trillions to the economy, right? The original allocation in this this new budget for future pandemic preparedness was 60 billion. So tiny proportion of it. That proceeded to get whittled down to like, 30 billion to 15 billion, all the way down to 2 billion out of multiple trillions for a thing that has just cost us multiple trillions. We've just finished. We're barely even, we're not even really out of it. It it basically got whittled down to nothing because for some reason people think that, whew, all right, we've got the pandemic out of the way. That was that one. And the reason for that is that people are, and and I say this with all due respect to a lot of the science community, but they are, there's an immense amount of naivety about they, they they think that nature is the main risk moving forward, and it really isn't. Um, and I think nothing demonstrates this more than this uh, this project that I was just reading about that's sort of being proposed right now called um, Deep Vision. And the idea is to go out into the wilds, and we're not talking about just like, you know, within cities, like deep into like caves that people don't go to, deep into the Arctic, wherever, scour the earth for whatever the most dangerous possible pathogens could be that they can find and then not only do you know try and find these bring samples of them back to laboratories and again whether you think covid was a lab leak or not i'm not going to get into that but we have historically had so many as a civilization we've had so many lab leaks from even like the highest level security things like it, it just it's it the, people should go and just read it it's like it's like a comedy show of just how many they are how leaky these these labs are even when they do their best efforts um so bring these things then back to civilization that's step 1 of the badness then the, the, the next plan, the next step would be to then categorize them do experiments on them and categorize them by their level of potential pandemic lethality. And then the piece de resistance on this plan is to then publish that information freely on the internet about all these pathogens, including their genome, which is literally like the building instructions of how to do them on the internet. And this is something that genuinely a pocket of the like bio, of the scientific community thinks is a good idea. And I think on expectation, like the, and their argument is, is that, oh, this is good because, you know, it might buy us some time to buy, to, to develop vaccines, which, okay, sure, maybe would have made sense prior to mRNA technology, but, you know, like they, mRNA, we can bank, we can develop a vaccine now when we find a new uh, pathogen within a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Now then there's all the trials and so on, but those trials would have to happen anyway in the case of a brand new thing. So you're saving maybe a couple of days. So that's the upside. Meanwhile, the downside is, you're not only giving, you're bringing the risk of these pathogens of like getting leaked, but you're literally handing it out to 
every bad actor on earth who would be doing cartwheels. And I'm talking about like Kim Jong-un, ISIS, people who like want, they think the rest of the world is their enemy. Um, and in some cases, they, they think that killing it themselves is, is, is like a, a noble cause. And you're literally giving them the building blocks of how to do this. It's the most batshit idea I've ever heard. Like on expectation, it's probably like minus EV of like multiple billions of lives if they actually succeeded in doing this. Certainly certainly in the tens or hundreds of millions. So the cost benefit is so unbelievably, it makes no sense. And I, I was trying, like, trying to wrap my head around, like, why, why like, w- what's going wrong in people's minds to think that this is a good idea? And it's not that it's malice or anything like that. It's, I think it's that people don't, you know, the proponents, they don't, it, they're actually overly naive about, the interactions of humanity and well like that there are bad actors who will use this for for bad things because not only will it um if if you publish this information even if a bad actor couldn't physically make it themselves which given you know in 10 years time like the technologies are getting cheaper and easier uh to use but even if they couldn't make it they could now bluff it like what what would you do if there's like some deadly new virus that um we were published on the internet in terms of its building blocks. Kim Jong-un could be like, hey, if you don't, you know, let me build my nuclear weapons, I'm going to release this. I've managed to build it. Well, now he's actually got a credible bluff. We don't know, you know? And so that's, it's just like handing the keys, it's handing weapons of mass destruction to people. The, it makes no the, sense. The possible, I agree with you, but the possible world in which it might make sense is if the... um the good guys, which is a whole another problem, def- defining who the good guys are, but the good guys are like an order of magnitude higher competence, and so they can stay ahead of the bad actors by just being very good at the defense. By very good, not meaning like a little bit better, but an order of magnitude better. But of course, the question is in each of those individual disciplines. Uh, is that feasible? Can you can the bad actors, even if they don't have the competence, leapfrog to the place where uh, the good guys are? Yeah, I mean, I would I would agree in principle um, with pertaining to this like particular plan of, of like that that you know with the thing I described this deep vision thing, where at least then that would maybe make sense for steps one and step two of like getting the information, but then why would you release it the information to your literal enemies? You know, that's that makes. N- that 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 doesn't fit at all in that perspective of but, like trying to be ahead of them. You're literally handing them the weapon. But there's different levels of release, right? So uh, there's the kind of secrecy where you don't give it to anybody, but there's a release where you incrementally give it to uh, like major labs. So it's not public release, but it's like you're sure. giving it to yeah, major so there's, labs. There's different layers of but, reasonability, but, but but the problem there is it's going to if if you go anywhere beyond like complete secrecy, it's going to leak. That's the thing. It's very hard to keep secrets. And so that's still information is. So you might as well release it to the public. Is that argument? So you either go complete secrecy, or you release it to the public. So which is essentially the same thing. It's going to leak anyway if you don't do complete secrecy. Right. Which is why you shouldn't get the information in the first place. Yeah. Like. I mean, well, in that, I think. Well, I that's think, a solution. Yeah. The, the solution I, I is think, either don't get the information in the first place, or be keep keep it incredibly incredibly contained yes. see i think i think it really matters which discipline we're talking about so in the case of right. biology i do think you're a very right we shouldn't even be it should be forbidden to even like think about 
that. Meaning don't collect, don't just even collect the information, but like don't do, I mean, gain of function research is a really iffy area. Like you start. I mean, it's all about cost benefits, right? There are some scenarios where I could imagine the cost benefit of a gain of function research is very, very clear where you've evaluated all the potential risks, factored in the probability that things can go wrong, and like, you know, not only known unknowns, but unknown unknowns as well. Tried to quantify that. And then even then, it's like orders of magnitude better to do that. I'm I'm behind that argument. But the point is, is that there's this like naivety that's preventing people from even doing the cost benefit properly on a lot of the things. Because, you know, the I I get it, the science community, again, I don't want to bucket the science community, but like some people within the science community just think that everyone's Everyone's good and everyone just cares about getting knowledge and doing the best for the world. And unfortunately, that's not the case. I wish we lived in that world, but we don't. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lie. Listen, I've been criticizing the science community broadly quite a bit. There's so many brilliant people that br- brilliance is somehow a hindrance sometimes because it has a bunch of blind spots. And then you start to look at a history of science, how easily it's been used by dictators to any conclusion they want. And it's... It's it's dark how you can use brilliant people that like playing the little game of science because it is a fun game. You know, you're building, you're going to conferences, you're building on top of each other's ideas, breakthroughs. Huh, I, I think I've realized how this particular molecule works and I could do this kind of experiment and everyone else is impressed. Oh, cool. No, I think you're wrong. Let me show you why you're wrong. And that little game, everyone gets really excited and they, they get excited. Oh, I came up with a pill that solves this problem and it's going to help a bunch of people. And I came up with a giant study that shows the exact probability it's going to help or not. And you get lost in this game and you forget to realize this game, just like Moloch, <laughs> it can have like... Unintended, quen- yeah. unintended consequences that might destroy human civilization right. uh, or or divide human civilization or have uh, dire geopolitical consequences. I mean, the, the effects of, I mean, it's just so, the, the most destructive effects of COVID have nothing to do with the, with the biology of the virus, it seems like. Uh, it's, I mean, I could just list them forever. <laughs> but like one of them is the complete distrust of public institutions. Yeah. Uh, the other one is because of that public distrust, I feel like if a much worse pandemic came along, we, we as a world have now cried wolf. And when if an actual wolf now comes, people will be like, fuck masks, right. fuck... Fuck vaccines, fuck yeah, for everything, and they they won't be uh, they'll distrust every single thing that any major institution is going to tell them, yeah. and because I, that's the thing, like there, it, there were certain actions made by certain you know health public figures where they told they very knowingly told it was a white lie, it was intended in the best possible way, such as you know early on when. There were there was clearly a shortage of masks, and so they said to the public, "Oh, don't get masks. They don't. There's no evidence that they work. They're, or they, you know, don't get them. They don't work. In fact, it might even make it worse. You might even spread it more. Like that. That was the real like stinker. Uh, yeah, no, no. There's a, unless you know how to do it properly, you're going to make that. You're going to get sicker, or you're more likely to get the to catch the virus, which is just absolute crap. And they put that out there. And it's pretty clear the reason why they did that was because there was actually a shortage of masks and they really needed it for health workers, which makes sense. Like, I I agree, like, it, you know, but the cost of lying to the, popul- to the, to the public when that then comes out 
people aren't as stupid as they think they are as uh, you know and that's that's i think where this distrust of exp- experts has largely come from a they've lied to people overt- overtly but b people have been treated like idiots now that's not to say that there aren't a lot of stupid people who have a lot of wacky ideas around covid and all sorts of things but if you treat the general public like children they're going to see that they're going to notice that and that is going to dis- dis- like absolutely decimate the trust in the public institutions that we depend upon and honestly the best thing that could happen i, w- I wish like if like fauci or you know and and these other like leaders who i mean god i would ha- i can't imagine how nightmare his job has been for the last few years hell on earth like so you know i i you know i have i have a lot of sort of sympathy for the position he's been in but like if he could just come out and be like okay look guys Hands up. We didn't handle this as well as we could have. These are all the things I would have done differently in hindsight. I apologize for this and this and this and this. That would go so far. And maybe I'm being naive. Who knows? Maybe this would backfire. But I don't think it would. Like to someone like me, even, because I've like I've lost trust in a lot of these things. I'm but I'm fortunate that I at least know people who I can go to who I think are good, like have good epistemics on this stuff. Um, but you know, if they if they could sort of put their hands on and go, okay, these are the spots where we screwed up. This, this, this. Um, this was our reasons. Yeah, we actually told a little white lie here. We did it for this reason. We're really sorry. Where they just did the radical honesty thing, the radical transparency thing, that would go so far to build rebuilding public trust. And I think that's what needs to happen. Yeah, I, no, I totally agree with you. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, his job was very tough and all those kinds of things. But um, I see arrogance. And arrogance prevented him from being honest in that way previously. And I think arrogance will prevent him from being honest in that way. Now, when you leaders, I think young people are seeing that, that kind of um, talking down to people from a position of power, I'm, I hope is, is the way of the past. People really like authenticity and they, they like leaders that are like a man and a woman of the people. And I, I think that just... I mean, he still has a chance to do that, I think. I mean, I yeah, don't want to... Yeah, sure. I, mean, you know, just, I, I don't think, you know, if I, I doubt he's listening, but if he is, like, hey, I I, I think, he, you know, I don't think he's irredeemable by any means. I think there's, yeah. you know, um, I don't I don't have an opinion of whether there was arrogance or there or not. Um, just know that I think, like, coming clean on the, you know, it's understandable to have fucked up during this pandemic. Like, I won't expect any government to handle it well because it was so difficult. Like, so many moving pieces, so much, like, lack of information and so on. Um, But the step to rebuilding trust is to go, okay, look, we're doing a scrutiny of where we went wrong. And I, and for my part, I did this wrong in this part. And uh, that would be huge. All of us can do that. I mean, I was struggling for a while whether I wanted to talk to to him or not. I talked to his boss, Francis Collins. Another person that screwed up in terms of trust um, lost a little bit of my respect too. There seems to have been a kind of dishonesty in the in the back rooms, in that pe- they didn't trust people to be intelligent. Like we need to tell them what's good for them. Mm. We know what's good for them. That kind of idea. To be fair. The the thing that's what's it called? I heard the phrase today. Uh, nut picking. Social media does that. So you've got like nitpicking. Nut picking is where the the the, the craziest, stupidest. You know, if you have a group of people, let's call you know, let's say people who are vaccine. I don't like the term anti-vaxxer. People who are vaccine hesitant, yeah. vaccine speculative. You know what social media did, or the media, or anyone. You know, their opponents 
would do is pick the craziest examples. So the ones who are like, you know, I think I need to inject myself with like <laughs> motor oil up my ass or something. Yeah. You know, select the craziest ones and then have that beamed to, you know, so from like someone like Fauci or Francis's perspective, he, that's what they get because they're getting yeah. the same social media stuff as us. They're getting the same media reports. I mean, they might get some more information, but they they too are going to get these the nuts portrayed to them. So they probably have a misrepresentation of what the actual public's intelligence is. Well, that, like that actually, that just, yes. And that just means they're not social media savvy. So one of the skills of being on social media is to be able to filter that in your own mind, like to understand, to right. put into proper context. To, to realize that what you are seeing, to, social media is not anywhere near an accurate representation of humanity. Not picking a leather. And there's nothing uh, wrong with putting uh, motor oil up your ass. It's just one, it's one of hey, the better what, well, aspects you know, of... Do. <laughs> I, I do this every weekend. Okay. Uh, Where the hell did that analogy come from in my mind? Like, what? I don't know. I think we need to... <laughs> there's some Freudian thing we need to deeply investigate with a therapist. Okay. What about AI? Are you worried about... AGI, super intelligence systems, or paperclip maximizer type of type of situation? Yes, I'm definitely worried about it. But I feel kind of bipolar in that some days I wake up and I'm like... You're excited about the future? Well, exactly. I'm like, oh, wow, we can unlock the mysteries of the universe, you know, escape the game. Um, and... <laughs> This, this, you know, if because I spend all my time thinking about these molecky problems that, you know, what what is the solution to them? What, you know, in some ways you need this like omni benevolent, omniscient, omni wise coordination mechanism that can like make us all not do the 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 molecky thing, uh, or like pr provide the infrastructure or redesign the system so that it's not vulnerable to this molecky process. Um, and in some ways, you know, that's that's the strongest argument to me for like the race to build AGI is mm -hmm. that maybe, you know, we can't survive without it. But the flip side to that is the 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 the, the, the unfortunately now that there's multiple actors trying to build AI, AGI, you know, this is this was fine ten years ago when it was just DeepMind, but then other companies started up and now it created a race dynamic. Now it's like that's a, the whole thing is at the same it's got the same problem. It's like whichever company is the one that like optimizes for speed at the cost of safety will get the competitive advantage. And so we're the more likely the ones to build the AGI, you know, and, and that's the same cycle that you're in. And there's no clear solution to that because you can't just go like um, slapping, you know, the, the, if you go and try and like stop all the different companies, then it will, you know, the, the good ones will stop because mm -hmm. they're the ones, you know, within, you know, within the West's reach, but then that leaves all the other ones to continue and then they're even more likely. So it's like, it's, it's a very difficult problem with no clean solution. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you know, I, I know the, at least some of the folks at DeepMind and they're incredible and they're thinking about this. They're very aware of this problem and they're like, you know, I think some of the smartest people on earth. Yeah, the, the, the culture is important there because they are thinking about that and they're some of the best machine learning engineers. So it's possible to have a, a, a company or a community of people that are both great engineers and are thinking about the philosophical topics. Exactly. And importantly, they're also game theorists, right. you know, and because this is ultimately a game theory problem.
the thing, this this Moloch mechanism, and like you know what this rate, how do we voice rate uh, arms race scenarios? Um, you need people who aren't naive to be thinking about this. And again, like luckily, there's a lot of smart, non-naive game theorists within the, within that group. Yes, I'm concerned about it, and I, I I think it's again a thing that we need people to be thinking about um, in terms of like how do we create, how do we mitigate the arms race dynamics, and how do we solve the thing of it's got Bostrom calls it the orthogonality problem whereby because there's obviously there's a chance you know the the belief the, the hope is is that you build something that's super intelligent and by definition of being super intelligent it will also become super wise and have the wisdom to know what the right goals are and hopefully those goals include keeping humanity alive right um but Bostrom says that actually those two things you know on super intelligence and super wisdom aren't necessarily correlated. They're actually kind of orthogonal things. And how do we make it so that they are correlated? How do we guarantee it? Because we need it to be guaranteed, really, to know that we're doing the thing safely. But I think that, like, um, merging of intelligence and wisdom, the, at least my hope is that this whole process happens sufficiently slowly, that we're constantly having these kinds of debates, th that we have enough time to... Um, to figure out how to modify each version of the system as it becomes more and more intelligent. Yes. Buying time is is a good thing, definitely. Anything that slows everything down. We just, everyone needs to chill out. We've got millennia to figure this out. Yeah. Um, or at least, at least, um, well, it depends. Again, it's, some people think that, you know, we can't even make it through the next few decades without having some kind of om omni-wise coordination mechanism um and there's also an argument to that yeah i don't know well there is uh i'm suspicious of that kind of thinking because it seems like the entirety of human history is is uh, has people in it that are like predicting doom uh or just around the corner there's something about us that is strangely attracted to that thought it's it's almost like fun to think about the destruction of everything just objectively speaking I've talked and listened to a bunch of people and they are gravitating towards that. It's almost, I think it's the same thing that people love about conspiracy theories is they love to be the person that kind of figured out mm -hmm. some deep fundamental thing about the, that's going to be, it's going to mark something extremely important about the history of human civilization because then I will be important. Right. When in reality, most of us will be forgotten, and 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 and, and life will will go on. I mean, one of the sad things about whenever anything traumatic happens to you, whenever you lose loved ones, or just tragedy happens, you realize life goes on, mm. even after a nuclear war that will wipe out some large percentage of the population and will torture. People for years to come because of the sort of, I mean, the effects of a nuclear winter. People will still survive. Life will still go on. I mean, it depends on the kind of Thanks. nuclear war. But in, in case of nuclear war, it will still go on. That's one of the amazing things about life. It finds a way. And so, in, in that sense, I just I feel like the doom and gloom thing is a. Um, well, what we don't, yeah, we don't want a self fulfilling prophecy. Yes, that's exactly. Yes. And I very much agree with that. And I, you know, even I have a slight like eh, feeling from the amount of time we've spent in this conversation talking about this because it's like, 
you know, is this even a net positive if it's like making everyone feel, oh, in some ways, like making people imagine these bad scenarios can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But at the same time, that's that's weighed off with at least making people aware of the problem and gets them thinking. And I think particularly, you know, the reason why I want to talk about this to your audience is that on average, they're the type of people who gravitate towards these kind of topics because they're intellectually curious and, Mm -hmm. and they can sort of sense that there's trouble brewing. Yeah. They can smell that there's, you know, I think there's a reason that people are thinking about this stuff a lot is because the probability, the probability, for, you know, it's, it's increased in probability over certainly over the last few years. Um, trajectories have not gone favorably, let's put it, since, you know, since 2010. So um, it's right, I think, for people to be thinking about it. But that's where they're like, I think, whether it's a useful fiction or whether it's actually true or whatever you want to call it, I think having this faith, this is where faith is valuable. Because it gives you at least this like anchor of hope. And and I and I'm not just saying it to like trick myself. Like I do truly, I do think there's something out there that wants us to win. Yeah. I think there's something that really wants us to win. And it just you just have to be like just like kind of okay, now I sound really crazy, but like open your heart to it a little bit. Yeah. And it will give you the like the sort of breathing room with which to marinate on the solutions. We are the ones who have to come up with the solutions, but we can use that. There's like there's <laughs> hashtag positivity. There's value in that. Yeah, you ha- you have to kind of imagine all the destructive trajectories that lay in our future, and then believe in the possibility of avoiding those trajectories. All while you said audience, all while sitting back, which is. Majority the the two people that listen to this are probably sitting on a beach, smoking some weed. Um, God just that's <laughs> a beautiful sunset, or they're looking at just the waves going in and out. And ultimately, there's a kind of deep belief there in um, the the momentum of humanity to figure it all out. We'll make it, but we've got a lot of work to do. Which is which? What makes this whole simulation, this video game, kind of fun? This uh, battle of Polytopia, I still, man, I love those games so much. That's so good. Uh, and that that one for people who don't know, but uh, Battle of Polytopia is a is a big, it's like a is this really radical sim- simplification of a civilization type of game. It still has a lot of the skill tree development, a lot of the strategy, um, but it's easy enough to play on a phone. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. They've really they've really figured it out. It's it's one of the most elegantly designed games I've ever seen. It's incredibly complex, and yet being again, it walks that line between complexity and simplicity in this really really great way. Um, and they use pretty colors that hack the dopamine reward circuits in our brains very well. Yeah, it's fun. I, video games are so fun. Yeah, the, most of this life is just about fun, escaping all the suffering to find the fun. Uh, what's energy healing? I have in my notes energy <laughs> healing question mark. What's that about? <laughs> Uh, uh, oh man um, god your audience are going to think I'm mad uh, so the the two crazy things that happened to me the one was yes. the, the voice in the head that said you're going to win this tournament and then I won the tournament the other craziest thing uh, that's happened to me was in 2018 um, I started getting uh, this like weird problem in my ear where it was kind of like low frequency sound distortion. 
uh, where voices, particularly men's voices, became incredibly unpleasant to listen to. Um, it would it would like create this, it would like be falsely amplified or something. And it was almost like a physical sensation in my ear, which was really unpleasant. And I, it would like last for a few hours and then go away and then come back for a few hours and go away. And I went and got hearing tests and they found that like the bottom end, I was losing the, the hearing in that ear. Um, and I, so I, in the end I got, the doctors said they think it was this thing called many ears disease, um, which is this very, unpleasant disease where people basically end up losing their hearing but they get this like um it often comes with like dizzy spells and other things because it's like the inner ear gets all messed up um now i don't know if that's actually what i had um but that's what at least a couple of one doctor said to me um but anyway so i'd had three months of this stuff this going on and it was really getting me down i was then i was at burning man um of all places <laughs> i don't mean to be that person talking about burning man um but i was there and again, I'd had it and I was unable to listen to music, which is not what you want because Burning Man is a very loud, intense place. Mm. And I was just having a really rough time. And on the final night, uh, I get talking to this uh, girl who's like a friend of a friend. And I mentioned, I was like, oh, I'm really down in the dumps about this. And she's like, oh, well, I've, I've done a little bit of energy healing. Would you like me to have a look? And I was like, sure. Now, this was, again, deep. I was, you know, no time in my life for this. I didn't believe in any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I was just like, it's all bullshit. It's all wooey nonsense. Um, but I was like, sure, have a go. And she starts like f with her hand and she says, oh, there's something there. And then she leans in and she starts like sucking over my ear, not actually touching me, but like close to it, like with her mouth. And it was really unpleasant. I was like, whoa, can you stop? She's like, no, 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 there's something there. I need to get it. And I was like, no, 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 I really don't like it. Please. This is really loud. She's like, I need to just bear with me. And she does it. And I don't know how long, for a few minutes. And then she eventually collapses on the ground, like freezing cold, crying. <laughs> Not, you know, and I'm just like, I don't know what the hell is going on. Like, I'm like thoroughly freaked out, as is everyone else watching. Just like, <laughs> what the hell? And we like warm her up. And she was like, oh, what? Oh. You know, she was really shaken up. Yeah. And she's like, I don't know what that, she said it was something very, unpleasant and dark don't worry it's gone i think you'll be fine in a couple you'll have the physical symptoms for a couple of weeks and you'll be fine but you know she, she was like that you know so i was i was so rattled a because the potential that actually i'd had something bad in me that yeah. made someone feel bad and 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 that she was scared that was what you know i was like wait i thought you you, you do this this is the thing <laughs> and now you're terrified like yeah. you pulled like some kind of an exorcism or something yeah like, what the fuck is going on yeah um so it it like just it, the most insane experience um and frankly it took me like a few months to sort of emotionally recover from it um but my ear problem went away about a couple of weeks later and touch wood i've not had any issues since so that, that gives you uh like hints that maybe there's something out there i mean I, I don't, I, I, again, I don't have an explanation for this. The most probable explanation was that, you know, I was a burning man. I was in a very open state. Let's just leave it at that. Um, and, you know, who, placebo is an incredibly powerful thing and a very yeah. un, not understood thing. So Almost assigning the word placebo to it reduces it down to a way that it doesn't deserve to be reduced down. Maybe there's a right. whole science of what we call placebo. Maybe there's a... Th Placebo is a door. Self-healing. Yeah. You know, 
And I mean, I don't know what the problem was. Like I was told it was many years. I don't want to say I definitely had that because I don't want people to think that, oh, that's how, you know, if they do have that because it's a terrible disease and if they have that, that this is going to be a guaranteed way for it to fix it for them. I don't know. Um, and I also don't, I don't, and you're absolutely right to say like using even the word placebo is like, it comes with this like baggage of, of like frame and I don't want to reduce it down. All I can do is describe the experience and what happened. I cannot put uh, an ontological framework around it. I can't say why it happened, what the mechanism was, what the problem even was in the first place. Um, I just know that something crazy happened and it was while I was in an open state. And fortunately for me, it made the problem go away. But what I took away from it, again, it, it was part of this, you know, this took me on this journey of becoming more humble about what I think I know. Because as I said before, I was like, I was in the like Richard Dawkins train of atheism in terms of there is no God. There's and everything like that is bullshit. We know everything. We know, you know, the only way we can get through, uh, we know how medicine works and its molecules and, and chemical interactions and that kind of stuff. And now it's like, okay, well, there's, there's clearly more for us to understand. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's ascientific as well, because, mm -hmm. you know, you, uh, the, the beauty of the scientific method is that it still it still can apply to this situation. Like I don't see why, you know, I would like to try and test this experimentally. Um, I haven't really like you know I don't know how we would go about doing that. We'd have to find other people with the same condition, I guess, and like try and you know, repeat repeat the experiment. Um, but what? it doesn't just because something happens that's sort of out of the realms of our current understanding. It doesn't mean that it's the scientific method can't be used for it. Yeah, I think the scientific method sits on a foundation of those kinds of experiences. Because a scientific method is a process to um, carve away at the mystery uh, all around us. And experiences like this is just a reminder that uh, we're mostly shrouded in mystery still. That's it. It's just like a humility. Like yeah. we haven't really figured this whole thing mm -hmm. out. But at the same time, we have found ways to act. You know, we're, we're clearly doing something right because think of the technological, scientific advancements, the knowledge that we have yeah. that is, would blow people's minds even from 100 years ago. Yeah, and you know? we've even allegedly gone out to space and landed on the moon. Although I still haven't, I have not seen evidence of, of the Earth being round, but I'm, st <laughs> I'm keeping an open mind. Uh, speaking of which... Uh, you studied physics and astrophysics. <laughs> uh, what, when just to go to that, we jump just to jump around through the fascinating life you've had. When, when did you? How did that come to be? Like when? When did you fall in love with astronomy and and space and things like this? As early as I can remember, um, I was very lucky that my my mum and my dad, but particularly my my mum, my mum is like the most nature she is mother earth it's the only way to describe her just she's like dr doolittle animals flock to her and just like sit and look at her adoringly as she sings yeah she, she's just <laughs> she just is mother earth and yeah. she has always been fascinated by you know she doesn't have any you know she never went to university or anything like that she's actually phobic of maths if i try and get her to like you know i was trying to teach her poker and she hated it um but she's so deeply curious um, and that just got instilled in me when, you know, we would sleep out under the stars whenever it was, you know, the two nights a year when it was warm enough in the UK to do that. Um, and we would just lie out there until I, until we fell asleep looking at, looking for satellites, looking for shooting stars. And, and I was just 
always, I don't know whether it was from that, but I've always naturally gravitated to like the biggest, the biggest questions. And also the like the most layers of abstraction. I love just like, what's the meta question? What's the meta question? And so on. Um, so I think it just came from that really. And it, and, and then on top of that, like physics, you know, it also made logical sense in that it was a, it was, it was the degree, it was a degree that was well, a subject that ticked the box of being, you know, answering these really big picture questions, but it was also extremely useful. It like has a very high utility um, in terms of, I didn't know necessarily, I thought I was going to become like a research scientist. I, my original plan was, I want to be a professional astronomer. So it's not just like a philosophy degree that asks the big questions and it's not uh, like biology and the path to go to medical school or something like that, which is all overly pragmatic, not overly, is um, is, is very more pragmatic. On the pragmatic side but of this is, yeah, physics is a good combination of, of the two. Yeah, at least for me, it made sense. And I was good at it. I liked it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't like I did an immense amount of soul searching to choose it or anything. It just was like this, um, it made the most sense. I mean, it, you have to make this decision in the UK age 17, which is yeah. crazy. Because, um, you know, in US, you go the first year, you do a bunch of stuff, right? And then you choose your major. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think the first few years of college, you focus on the drugs. And only as you get closer to the end, <laughs> <laughs> do you start to think, oh shit, this wasn't about that, and I'm, uh, I owe the government a lot of money. <laughs> um, how many alien civilizations are out there? When you oh. when you looked up at the stars with your mom, and you were counting them, what's your mom think about the uh, number of alien civilizations? I actually don't know. I would imagine she would take the viewpoint of, you know, she's pretty humble, and she knows how many. She knows there's a huge number of potential spawn sites out there so she would spawn sites spawn sites yeah, yeah. Well, you know this is our spawn, spawn sites. sites yeah spawn sites in polytopia we spawned on earth you know it's hmm yeah spawn sites why does that feel weird to say spawn because it makes me feel like it's um there's only one source of life and it's spawning in different locations that's why the word spawn because like it feels like life that originated on earth really originated here right it is it is in, a unique to yeah. this particular yeah i mean but i don't in my mind it doesn't exclude you know that completely different forms of life and different biochemical soups can't also spawn but i guess it implies that there's some spark that is yeah uniform, which i, I kind of like the idea of that it's yeah. you know and then I, I get to think about respawning like after it dies, like what happens if life on Earth ends? Is it is it going to restart again? Probably not. It de it depends. Yeah, maybe Earth is. It too... depends on the type of you know what what's the thing that kills it kills it off, right? If it's a paperclip maximizer, not that, you know for the for the example, but you know some kind of very self replicating, you know, high on the capabilities, very low on the wisdom type thing. Yeah. So whether that's you know gray goo, green goo you know, like nanobots or just a shitty misaligned AI that thinks it needs to turn everything into paperclips. Um, you know, if it's something like that, then it's going to be very hard for life, you know, complex life. Because by definition, you know, a paperclip maximizer is the ultimate instantiation of Moloch. Deeply low complexity, over-optimization on a single thing, sacrificing everything else, turning the whole world into... Although something tells me, like, if we actually take a paperclip maximizer, it destroys everything. It's a really dumb system that just en envelops the whole of Earth. And the I universe beyond, yeah. 
I didn't. I didn't know that part. But okay, great. That's so the thought it, experiment. It, it anyway. becomes a multi-planetary paperclip maximizer. Well, it just it just propagates. I mean, it it depends whether it figures out how to jump the vacuum gap. Um, but it, again, I mean, this is all silly because it's it's a hypothetical thought experiment, which I think doesn't actually have much practical application to the AI safety problem. But it's just a fun thing to play around with. But yeah. if by definition it is maximally intelligent, which means it is maximally good at navigating the environment around it in order to achieve its goal but extremely bad at choosing goals in the first place so again we're talking on this orthogonality thing right it's very low on wisdom but very high on capability um then it will figure out how to jump the vacuum gap between planets and stars and so on and thus just turn every atom it gets its hands on into paper clips yeah uh, by the way for, for people who which is maximum virality by the way that's what virality is but does not mean that virality is necessarily all about maximizing paper clips in that case it is so for people who don't know this is just a, a thought experiment example of an ai system that's very that has a goal and is willing to do anything to accomplish that goal, including destroying all life on Earth and all human life and all of consciousness in the universe in or, for the goal of producing a maximum number of paper clips. Okay. Uh, or, or whatever its optimization function was that it was set at. But don't you think... It could be making re recreating Lexes. Maybe it'll tile the universe in Lex. Uh, go on. I so, like this idea. No, I'm just kidding. Right. That's, that's better. <laughs> yeah. That's that's more interesting than paperclips. That could be infinitely optimal if but I were to if say you ask me, it's, it's still a bad thing because it's permanently capping yeah. what the universe could ever be. It's like that's that's its end state. Or achieving the optimal that the universe could ever achieve. But that's up to different people have different perspectives. Uh, but don't you think within the paperclip world that would emerge just like in the zeros and ones that make up a computer that would emerge beautiful complexities. Like it, it, it won't suppress, you know, as you scale to multiple planets and throughout, there'll, there'll emerge these little worlds that uh, on top of the fabric of maximizing paperclips, there will be, uh, that, that would emerge like little societies of, of, uh, Paperclip. Well, then we're not. Then we're not describing a paperclip maximizer anymore because, by the de like, if you think of what a paperclip is, it is literally just a piece of bent iron. Yes. Right. So if it's maximizing that throughout the universe, it's taking every atom it gets its hand on into somehow turning it into iron or steel, yeah, and then bending it into that shape and then done and done. By definition, like paperclips, there is no there is no way for well. Okay, so you're saying that paperclips somehow will just emerge and create well, through gravity or something? No, well, no, 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 because because there's there's a dynamic element to the whole system. It's not just it's creating those paperclips, and the act of creating there's going to be a process, and that process will have a dance to it because it's not like sequential thing. There's a whole complex three dimensional system of paperclips. Uh, you know, like, uh, you know, people like string theory, right? It's, it's supposed to be strings that are interacting in fascinating ways. I'm sure paperclips are, are very string-like. They can be interacting in very interesting ways as you scale exponentially through three-dimensional. I mean, I'm sure the paperclip maximizer has to come up with a theory of everything. It has to create like wormholes, right? It has to break uh, like 
it has to understand quantum mechanics. I, I love your I love your optimism. This is where I'd say this we're going into the realm of pathological optimism where it violates. <laughs> um I'm sure there'll be a, <laughs> a, a I, I think there's an intelligence that emerges from that system. So you're you're saying that basically intelligence is inherent in the fabric of reality and will find a way. Kind of like yeah. Goldblum says life will find a way. You think life will find a way even out of this perfectly homogenous dead soup. It's not perfectly homogenous. It has to, it's perfectly maximal in the production. I don't know why people keep thinking it's homogenous. It maximizes the number of paperclips. That's the only thing. It's not trying to be homogenous. It's trying true. to, true. It's true. Trying true, to true, maximize true. paperclips. So you're saying, you're saying that because it, because, you know, kind of like in the Big Bang, or, you know, it seems like, you know, things, there were clusters, there was more stuff here than there. That was enough yeah. of the patternicity it's, that kick-started the evolutionary it's the, process. It's the little weirdnesses that, that will make even it beautiful. Out of, yeah. So, yeah, Complexity you, emerges. Interesting. Okay. Well, so how does that line up then with the the whole heat death of the universe, right? Because that's that's another sort of instantiation of this. It's like everything becomes so far apart and so cold and so perfectly mixed that it's like homogenous grayness. Mm -hmm. Do you think that even out of that homogenous grayness where there's no you know, negative energy, uh, entropy that, you know, there's no uh, free energy that we understand, even from that new stuff. Yeah, the, the paperclip ma maximizer or any other intelligence systems will figure out ways to travel to other universes to create big bangs within those universes or through black holes to create whole other worlds <sighs> to break the, what we consider are the limitations of physics. <laughs> <laughs> the, the paperclip maximizer will find a way if a way exists and we're, we should be humble to realize that we because, don't really... yeah, be, but because it just wants to make more paperclips yeah. so it's going to go into those universes and turn them into paperclips yeah but we, oh. we humans not humans but com complex systems exist on top of that we're not interfering with it, it the, the, this complexity emerges from this the simple base state the simple base whether, state whether it's yeah whether it's you know, Planck lengths or paperclips is the base yeah. unit. Yeah, I you, you can think of like the universe as a paperclip maximizer because it's doing some dumb stuff. Like physics seems to be pretty dumb. It has like I don't know if you can su summarize yes. it. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the 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 laws are fairly basic, and yet out of them, amazing complexity emerges. And its goals seem to be pretty basic and dumb. If you can summarize its goals, I mean, I don't I don't know what's a nice way. Maybe. Um, maybe laws of thermodynamics could be good. I don't know if you can assign goals to physics, but if you formulate in the in a, in a sense of goals, it's very similar to paperclip maximizing in, in the dumbness of the goals. But the the pockets of complexity as, as it emerge is where beauty emerges. That's where life emerges. That's where intelligence, that's where humans emerge. And I, I think we're being very down on this whole paperclip maximizer thing. Now, the you're, reason we hate what, it, I think, yeah, because what you're saying is that you think that the force of emergence itself yeah. Yeah. is another like unwritten, well, not, not unwritten, but like another baked-in law of the of of reality. Yeah, and and you, you're trusting that emergence will find a way to even out of seemingly the most mollicky awful, you know, plain outcome, emergence will still find a way. I, lo I love that as a philosophy. I think yeah. it's really nice. I would wield it carefully because there's large error bars on, on that and the, and the certainty of that. Yeah. Um, and How about we build the paperclip maximizer and find out? 
Classic. Yeah. Moloch is doing <laughs> cartwheels, man. Yeah. Yeah. But the I thing know. is, yeah. it will destroy humans in the process, which is the thing, which is the reason we really don't like it. We we seem to be really holding on to this whole human civilization thing. It, would you would that make you sad if AI systems that are beautiful, that are conscious, that are interesting and complex and intelligent ultimately lead to the death of humans? Would that make you sad? If humans led to the death of humans? Sorry. Like if they would supersede humans. Oh, if, if some AI. Yeah, AI would uh, <laughs> would end humans. I mean, that's that's a, that's the reason why I'm like in some ways less emotionally concerned about AI risk as than say bio you know bio risk because at least with AI there's a chance you know if if we're in this hypothetical where it wipes out humans but it does it for some like higher purpose it needs our atoms to you know, energy to do something at least now there's the universe is going on to do something interesting um whereas if it wipes everything you know bio like just kills everything on earth and that's it and there's no more you know earth cannot spawn anything more meaningful in the in the few hundred million years it has left left because it doesn't have much time left um then uh yeah i i don't know that, that so one of my favorite books i've ever read is uh novacine by James Lovelock, who sadly just died. Um, he wrote it when he was like 99. He died aged 102, so it's a fairly new book. Um, and he sort of talks about that, that he thinks it's, you know, sort of building off this Gaia theory where like Earth is a like living, some form of intelligence itself. And that this is the next like step, right? Is this, this whatever this new intelligence that is maybe silicon-based as opposed to carbon-based goes on to do. Um, and it's a really sort of, in some ways, an optimistic but weirdly fatalistic book. Um, and I don't know if I fully subscribe to it, but it's a beautiful piece to read anyway. So am I sad by that idea? I think so, yes. And, and actually, yeah, this is the reason why I'm sad by the idea, because if something is truly brilliant and wise and smart and truly super intelligent, it should be able to figure out abundance. So if it figures out abundance, it shouldn't need to kill us off. It should be able to find a way for us. It should be, there's plenty, the universe is huge. There should be plenty of space for it to go out and do all the things it wants to do and like give us a little pocket where we can continue doing our things and we can continue to do things and so on. Um, and again, if it's so supremely wise, it shouldn't even be worried about the game theoretic considerations that by leaving us alive, we'll then go and create another like super intelligent agent that it then has to compete against mm -hmm. because it should be omni wise and smart enough to not have to concern itself with that. Unless, unless it deems humans to be kind of assholes, like uh, like th the humans are a source of non of a lose lose kind of dynamics. Well, yes and no. We're not I, Moloch is. That's why it's, I think it's important to say. But maybe humans are the source of Moloch. No, I th I mean I think game theory is the source of Moloch. And, I, you know, because Moloch exists in, in non-human systems as well. It happens within, like, agents within a game in terms of, like, you know, uh, it, it applies to agents, but, it, like, it can apply to, you know, uh, a species that's on an island of animals, you know, rats out-competing the ones that, like, massively consume all the resources are the ones that are going to win out over the more, like, chill socialized ones and so you know creates this malthusian trap like moloch exists in little pockets in nature as well well so it's wonder, not a strictly human thing. i wonder if it's actually a result of consequences of the invention of predator and prey dynamics maybe it needs to, ai will have to kill off every organism that so now you're talking about killing off competition not competition but just um uh like the way uh, 
it's like a like the weeds or whatever in in a beautiful flower garden. Parasites. The parasites, yeah, uh, on the, on the whole system. Now, yes. of course, it will it will it won't do that completely. It'll put them in a zoo like we do with parasites. It'll ring fence. Yeah, and there'll be somebody doing a PhD on like they'll prod humans with a stick and see what they do. <laughs> but uh, I mean, in terms of letting us run wild outside of the uh, you know geographically constrained region, that might be. Uh, that it might uh, decide to <laughs> against that. No, I think there's obviously the capacity for beauty and kindness and non uh, non moloch behavior amidst humans. So I'm pretty sure AI will preserve us. Uh, let me. Uh, you, I don't know if you answered the the aliens question. You, you oh, had, I didn't. You, you had a good conversation with Toby uh, Toby Ward. Yes. About um, various sides of the universe. I think did did he say? Now I'm forgetting, but I think he said it's a good chance we're alone. So the the, the classic, you know, Fermi paradox question is: um, there are so many spawn points, and yet, you know, it didn't take us that long to go from harnessing fire to sending out radio signals into space. So surely, given the vastness of space, we should be, and you know, even if only a tiny fraction of those create life and other civilizations too we should be the universe should be very noisy there should be evidence of dyson spheres or whatever you know like at least radio signals and so on but seemingly things are very silent out there um now of course it depends on who you speak to some people say that they're getting signals all the time and so on and like i don't want to make an epistemic statement on that but um it seems like there's a lot of silence and so that raises this paradox and then they uh the, the you know the drake equation mm -hmm. So the Drake equation is like uh, basically just a simple thing of like trying to estimate the number of possible uh, civilizations within the galaxy by multiplying the number of uh, stars created per year by the number of stars that have planets, planets that are habitable, blah, blah, blah. So all these like different factors. Um, and then you plug in numbers into that and you, you know, depending on like the range of, you know, your lower bound and your upper bound point, point estimates that you put in, you get out a number at the end for the number of civilizations. But what, Toby and his crew did um, differently was Toby is, is a researcher at the Future of Humanity Institute. Uh, they, instead of, they realized that it's like basically a statistical quirk that if you put in point sources, even if you think you're putting in conservative point sources, because on some of these variables, the the uncertainty is so large, it spans like maybe even like a couple of hundred of orders of magnitude. Um by putting in point sources, it's always going to lead to um, overestimates. Um, and so they, on, like by putting stuff on a log scale, or actually they did it on like a log log scale on some of them, um, so, and then like ran the simulation across the whole um, bucket of uncertainty across all those orders of magnitude. When you do that, then actually the number comes out much, much smaller. And that's the more statistically rigorous, you know, mathematically correct way of doing the calculation. It's still a lot of hand-waving. As science goes, it's it's like definitely, you know, just waving, I don't know what an analogy is, but it's hand-wavy. Um, and uh, anyway, when they did this, and then they in, did a Bayesian update on it as well to like factor in the fact that there is no evidence that we're picking up because, you know, no evidence is actually a form of evidence, right? Um, and the long and short of it comes out that the we're roughly around 70% to be the only uh, intelligent civilization in our galaxy thus far, and around 50-50 in the entire observable universe, which sounds so crazily counterintuitive, but their math is 
legit. Well, yeah, the, the math around this particular equation, which is the equation is ridiculous on many levels, but uh, the, 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 the powerful thing about the equation is there's the different things, different components that can be estimated and the error bars on which can be reduced with science. Mm -hmm. and, and hence throughout, since the equation came out, the, the error bars have been coming out on different, yeah, that's different very true. aspects. And so that it almost kind of says, uh, what like this gives you a mission to reduce the error bars on these estimates uh, over a period of time. And once you do, you can better and better understand. Like in the process of reducing the error bars, you'll get to understand actually what is the right way to find out where the aliens are, how many of them there are, and all those kinds of things. So I don't think it's good to use that for an estimation. I think you do have to think from like, more like from first principles, just looking at what life is on earth. Mm -hmm. Like, and trying to understand the very physics-based, chemistry, biology-based question of what is life, maybe computation-based. What the fuck is this thing? Right. And that, like, how difficult is it to create this thing? Right. It's it's one way to say, like, how many plants like this are out there, all that kind of stuff. But it feels like from our very limited knowledge perspective, the right way is to think, how how does, what is this thing and how does it originate? From, from very simple non-life things, how does complex life-like things emerge from, from, from a rock to a bacteria, mm. protein, and these like weird systems that encode information and pass information self from self-replicate and then also select each other and mutate in interesting ways such that they can adapt and evolve and build increasingly more complex systems. Right, well, it's, it's a form of information processing, yeah. right? Right. So Whereas it's, information transfer but then also an, an energy processing, which then results in, uh, I guess, information processing. Maybe I'm getting bogged well, down. So it's, well, it's doing some modification. And yeah, the input is some energy. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's able to extract, yeah, extract resources uh, from its environment in order to achieve a goal. But and the goal doesn't seem to be clear. Right. The, the, the goal <laughs> is, well, the goal is to make more of itself. Yeah. But in a way that... Uh, increases, I mean, I don't know if evolution is a, a fundamental law of the universe, but it seems to want to m replicate itself in a way that maximizes the chance of its survival. Individual agents within yeah. an ecosystem do, yes. Yes, evolution itself doesn't give a fuck. Right. right. It's a very, it don't care. It's just like, oh, you optimize it. Well, at least it's, it's certainly... Um, yeah, it doesn't care about the, the the welfare of the individual agents within it, but it does seem to. I don't know. I, I think it's. I think the mistake is that we're anthropomorphizing it's to even try and you know give evolution a mindset, um, because it is. Uh, there's a really great post by Eliezer Yudkowsky uh, on um, uh, Less Wrong, which is um, a, an alien god, and he talks about like the mistake we make when we try and like put our mind think through things from an evolutionary perspective as though like giving evolution like some kind of agency and what it wants. Um, yeah, worth reading, but uh, it, yeah. I, I would like to say 
that having interacted with a lot of really smart people that say that anthropomorphization is a mistake, I would like to say that saying that anthropomorphization is a mistake is a mistake. I think uh, there's a lot of power in anthropomorphization, uh, if I can only say that word correctly one time. Uh, I, just, I I think that's actually a really powerful way to reason through things. I, I think people, especially people in robotics, seem to run away from it as fast as possible. And uh, I, I just... Can I you think, give an example of like how it helps in robotics? Oh, in uh, that our world is a world of humans. And to see robots as fundamentally just tools runs away from the fact that we live in a world of a dynamic world of humans that like these all these game theory systems we've we've talked about that a robot that ever has to interact with humans and i don't mean like intimate friendship interaction i mean in a factory setting where it has to deal with the uncertainty of humans all that kind of stuff you have to acknowledge that the robot's behavior has an effect on the human Mm. just as much as the human has an effect on the robot. And there's a dance there. Mm. And you have to realize that this entity, when a human sees a robot, this is obvious in a physical manifestation of a robot, they feel a certain way. They have a fear, they have uncertainty, they um, they they have their own personal life projections. We have to have pets and dogs and the thing looks like a dog. They have their own memories of what a dog is like. They have certain feelings, and that's gonna be useful in a safety setting, safety critical setting, which is one of the most trivial settings for a robot it, in terms of how to avoid any kind of dangerous situations. And a robot should really cons consider that in um, navigating its environment. And we humans are right to reason about how a robot should consider navigating its environment through anthropomorphization. I. I I also think our brains are designed to think in 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 um, human um, human terms. Like game theory, I think is um, is is best applied in the space of human decisions. And so, uh, right, you're dealing. I mean, with things like AI, AIs, they are. You know, we can somewhat like. I don't think it's. The reason I, I say anthropomorphization we need to be careful with is because there is a danger of overly applying, overly wrongly assuming that's, that this artificial intelligence is going to operate in any similar way to us yeah. because it is operating on a fundamentally different substrate. Like even dogs or even mice or whatever in some ways, like anthropomorphizing them is less of a mistake, I think, than an AI, even though it's an AI we built and so on because at least we know that they're running from the same substrate and they've and they've also evolved from the same out of the same evolutionary process you know they've followed this evolution of like needing to compete for resources and needing to find a mate and that kind of stuff whereas an ai that has just popped into an existence somewhere on a like a cloud server let's say you know or whatever however it runs and whatever whether it, i don't know whether they have an internal experience i don't think they necessarily do I, in fact i don't think they do but the point is, is that to try and m apply any kind of modeling of like see, thinking through problems and decisions in the same way that we do has to be done extremely carefully because they are like, it, it, they're so alien. Their method of whatever their form of thinking is, is just so different because they've never had to evolve, you know, in the same way. 
Yeah, I was beautifully put. I was just playing devil's advocate. I do think in certain contexts, anthropomorphization is not going to hurt you. Yes. Engineers run away from it too fast. But I, yes, I can, I can but, see that. But yeah, mo- for, for the most <laughs> point, you're right. Uh, do you have advice for young people today, like the the 17 year old that you were, of uh, how to live life? You can mm. be proud of how to have a career. You can be proud of in this world full of mullocks. Think about the win-wins. Look for win-win situations. And be careful not to, you know, overly use your smarts to convince yourself that something is win-win when it's not. So that's difficult. And I don't know how to advise, you know, people on that because it's something I'm still figuring out myself. Um, But have that as a sort of default MO. Uh, don't see things, everything as a zero-sum game. Try to find the positive sumness and like find ways, to, if it if there doesn't seem to be one, for, consider playing a different game. So that I would suggest that. Um, it's, it's, do not become a professional poker player. Because yeah. <laughs> people always ask, they're like, oh, she's a pro, I want to do that too. Fine, you could have done it if you were, you know, when I started out, it was a very different situation back then. Poker is, you know, uh, a great game to learn in order to understand the way ways to think. And um, I recommend people learn it, but don't try and make a living from it these days. It's almost, it's, it's very, very difficult to the point of being impossible. Um, uh, and then really, really be aware of how much time you spend on your phone and on social media and really try and keep it to a minimum. Be aware that basically every moment that you spend on it is bad for you. So it doesn't mean to say you can never do it, but just have that running in the background. This I'm doing a bad thing for myself right now. Um, I think that's the general rule of thumb. Of course, about be- becoming a professional poker player, if there is a thing in your life that uh, that's like that and nobody can vi- convince you otherwise, just fucking do it. Um, <laughs> don't listen to anyone's advice. Yeah. Uh, uh, find, find a thing that you can't be talked out of too. That's a, that's a yeah, thing. I like that, yeah. Uh, you you were uh, a lead guitarist in a metal band. Oh, <laughs> did I write that down from something? Uh, what <laughs> did you? Uh, what did you do it for? The the uh, the the performing was it the the pure the the music of it? Was it just being a rock star? Why why did you do it? Um, so we only ever played two gigs. We, we we didn't last, you know, it wasn't a very, we weren't famous or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but I, I I was very into metal. Like it was my entire identity, mm-hmm. sort of from the age uh, of 16 to 23. What's the best metal band of all time? Oh, it's, don't ask me that. It's so hard to answer. Uh, uh. So I, I know I had a long argument with, um, so I'm, I'm a guitarist, more like a classic rock guitarist. Mm. So, you know, I've had friends who are very big Pantera fans. And so um, there was often arguments about um, what's the better metal band, Metallica versus Pantera. This is a more kind of 90s maybe discussion. Um, But I was always on the side of Metallica, both musically and in terms of performance and the the depth of lyrics and and so on. So, um, but they were, basically everybody was against me because if you're a true metal fan, I guess the idea goes is you can't possibly be a Metallica fan. I think Metallica's pop is is like it's they sold out. uh, Metallica are metal. Like they they were the. I mean, again, you can't say who was the godfather of metal, blah blah blah. But like they were so groundbreaking, 
and so brilliant. Um, I, I mean, you've named literally two of my favorite bands. Like that's that when you ask that question, who are my favorites? Like those, those were are- two that came up. A third one is Children of Bodom. Um, who I just think, oh, they just take all the boxes for me. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it, it, nowadays, like I kind of sort of feel like a repulsion to the. I I, I I was that myself. Like I'd be like, who do you prefer more? Come on, who's like, no, yeah. you have to rank them. But it's like this false zero sumness that's like, wh- why they're so additive? Like there's no conflict there. Although um, but, I, I, when people ask that kind of question about anything, movies. I feel like it's hard work and it's unfair, but it's, it's, you should it's, pick one. Yeah. Like, and I, that's actually, you know, the same kind of, yeah. it's like a fear of a commitment. Right. When people ask me, what's your favorite band? It's like, but I, you know, it's good to pick. Exactly. And thank you for, yeah. Thank you for the tough question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe not in, no, in, no, in a context no, when a good. lot of people are listening. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Not just like, what? Why does this matter? Uh, no, it, it does. It, it's, are you still into metal? Uh, funny enough, I was listening to a bunch before I came over here. Um, oh, like you? Do you use it for like motivation? Yeah, or get this, you into certain? Yeah, mood? I was weirdly listening to eighties hair metal before I came. Does that count hair- as metal? I think I think so. Okay. It's it's like proto metal, and it's happy. It's optimistic, happy proto metal. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean these things, you know, all these genres bleed into each other. Um, but yeah, sorry to answer your question about guitar playing. My relationship with it was kind of weird in that I was deeply uncreative um my objective would be to hear some really hard technical solo and then learn it memorize it and then play it perfectly but i was incapable of trying to write my own music like the idea was just absolutely terrifying um uh but i was also just thinking i was like it'd be kind of cool to actually try starting a band again and getting back into it and write but i it's scary it's scary I mean, I, I put out some guitar playing, just other people's covers. Like I play "Comfortably Numb" on on the internet. Nice. And it's scary too. It's scary putting stuff out there. Uh, and I, I had this similar kind of fascination with technical playing, both on piano and guitar. You know, uh, one of the first, um, one of the reasons that I started learning guitar is the from Ozzy Osbourne, Mister Crowley's solo. Mm-hmm. And one of the first solos I learned is that. Um, and it's there's a beauty to it. There's a melodic beauty tapping, to it. Tapping, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's some tapping, but it's it's just really fast. It's beautiful, it's, like arpeggios. Yeah, yeah. It's arpeggios. Yeah, and but there's a melody that you can hear through it. But there's also build up, mm. and it's, it's a beautiful solo. But it's also technically just visually the way it looks when a person watches. You feel like a rock star playing. Yeah. It. <laughs> um, but it it ultimately has to do with technical. You. you you're not developing the part of your brain that I think requires you to generate beautiful music. Mm. It is ultimately technical in nature. And so that took me a long time to let go of that and just be able to write music myself. And and that's a different, that's a different journey, I think. Mm. Um, I think that journey is a little bit more inspired in the blues world, for example, or improvisation is more valued, obviously in jazz and so on, but... Um, I, I think ultimately it's a more rewarding journey because you get to your relationship with the guitar then becomes a kind of escape from the mm-hmm. world where you can create, create. I mean, creating stuff is 
Um, and it's something you work with because my relationship with my guitar was like it was something to tame and defeat <laughs> yeah it's a which, challenge. Was, which was kind of what my whole personality was back then like i was just very like you know as i said like very competitive very just like must you know bend this thing to my will yeah. whereas writing music is you work it's like a dance yeah. you work with it yeah. but i think because of the competitive aspect for me at least that's still there which creates anxiety about uh, playing publicly or all that kind of stuff. I think that there's just like a harsh self-criticism within the whole mm. thing. It's really, really, really it's, it's, it's really tough. I want to hear some of your stuff. <laughs> I mean, that it, there's, it, the, there's certain things that feel really personal. And, and on top of that, as we talked about poker uh, offline, there's certain things that you get to a certain height in your life. And that doesn't have to be very high, but you get to a certain height and then you put it aside for a bit and it's hard to return to it because you remember being good. Mm. And it's hard to, um, like you being at, at a very high level in poker, it might be hard for you to return to poker every once in a while and enjoy it, knowing that you're just not as sharp as it mm. used to be because you're not doing it every single day. Uh, that That's something I always wonder with, I mean, even just like in chess with Kasparov, some of these greats just returning to it. It's just, it's almost painful. Yes, I can, yeah. And I feel that way with guitar too, you know, because I used to, play like every day a lot and so returning to it is, is painful because like it's like accepting the fact that this whole ride is finite and that you have you have a prime you, there, there's a yes. time when you're really good and now it's over and now we're on a different chapter of life yeah. it's like oh but I, I miss that yeah but, but you can still you can still discover joy within that process I'm, it's, it's been tough especially with some level of like as people get to know you, there's uh and people film stuff. You 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 don't have the privacy of just sharing something with a few people around you. Yeah, that's a beautiful privacy that that's it's a good with, point. With the internet, just gets disappearing. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, but all those pressures aside, if you really you can step up and still enjoy the fuck out of uh, a good musical performance. Um, what what do you think is the meaning of this whole thing? What's the meaning of life? Oof. Wow. It's in your name, as we talked about. You have to you have to live up. Do you feel <laughs> the requirement to have to live up to your name? Uh, because live? Yeah. No, because I don't see it. I mean, my... Well, again, it's kind of like... No, I don't know. Uh, we because about, my full name is Olivia. Yeah. So I can retreat in that and be like, oh, Olivia, what does that even mean? Um, live up to live. Uh, and, and no, I, that, I can't say I, I do because I've never thought of it that way. Okay. And then your name backwards is evil, as yes. we also talked about. <laughs> um, there's there's like layers. I, I, I mean, I, that, I feel the urge to, to live up to that, to be, to be the inverse of evil. Yeah. Um, or even better, because I don't think, you know, is the inverse of evil good or is good something completely separate to that? I think I, I, my intuition says it's the latter, but I don't know. Anyway, again, yeah. getting in the weeds. Um, what is the meaning of all this? Uh, of life. Um, Why are we here? I think to explore, have fun and understand um, and make more of here and to keep the game going. Of here? More of uh, here? More of, more of, more of, of this? Whatever more of this, this is? More of experience. Just to have more of experience and ideally positive experience, um, and more complex, you know, to I guess try and put it into a sort of vaguely scientific term, um, 
make it so that the program required, the length of code required to describe the universe is as long as possible. Uh, and that, you know, highly complex and therefore interesting. Because again, like, I know, you know, we bang the, the, the metaphor to death, but like, tiled with X, you know, tiled with uh, paper clips doesn't require that much of a code to describe. Um, obviously, maybe something emerges from it, but at that steady state, assuming a steady state, is not very interesting. Whereas it seems like our universe is over time becoming more and more complex and interesting. There's so much richness and beauty and diversity on this earth, and I want that to continue and get more. I want more, more, more diversity, and I, in, in the very best sense of that word, um, is I to me the 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 goal of all this uh yeah yeah and somehow have fun in the process yes because <laughs> we do create a lot of fun things along instead of in this creative force and all the beautiful things we create somehow there's like um funness to it and per perhaps that has to do with the finiteness of life the finiteness of all these experiences mm. which is what makes them kind of unique like the the fact that they end, there's this uh, whatever it is, falling in love or um, creating a piece of art or creating a bridge or creating a rocket or creating a I don't know just the the businesses that do that 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 build something or solve something. Mm. The fact that it is born and it dies. Um, somehow uh, embeds it with fun, with joy for the people involved. I don't know what that is, the finiteness of it. It can do. Some people struggle with the, you know, I mean, a big thing I think that one has to learn is is being okay with things coming to an end. And uh, in terms of like projects and so on, right? People cling on to things beyond what they're meant to be doing, you know, beyond what make, is reasonable. Um, and I'm going to have to come to terms with this podcast coming to an end. I really enjoy talking to you. I, I think it's obvious, as we've talked about many times, you should be doing a podcast. You should, well, you're already doing a, a lot, a lot of stuff publicly to the world, which is awesome. And you're a great educator. You're a great mind. You're a great intellect. But it's also this whole medium of just talking is it also is good. Fun. It's a fun one. It's, it really is good. And it's, it's, it's just, it's nothing but like, oh, it's just so much fun. And you can just get into so many, yeah. There's the space to just explore and and see what comes and and emerges and yeah. Yeah, to understand yourself better, and if you're talking to others, to understand them better. Yeah. And together with them, I mean, I you should do your you should do your own podcast, but you should also do a podcast with C, as yep. we talked about. Yeah. The the two of you have such uh, different minds that like melt together in, in just hilarious ways, fascinating <laughs> ways, just. Uh, the tension of ideas there is really powerful, but in general, I think you 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 got a beautiful voice. So thank you, thank you so much for talking today. Thank you. thank you for being a friend. Thank you for honoring me with this conversation and with your valuable time. Thanks, Liv. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Liv Burry. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now let me leave you with some words from Richard Feynman. I think it's much more interesting to live not knowing than to have answers which might be wrong. I have approximate answers and possible beliefs and different degrees of uncertainty about different things, but I'm not absolutely sure of anything. And there are many things I don't know anything about, such as whether it means anything to ask why we're here. 
I don't have to know the answer. I don't feel frightened not knowing things by being lost in a mysterious universe without any purpose, which is the way it really is, as far as I can tell. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.